Pelotero Pickle episode 58. We have a special guest, Kevin Pilar of the New York Mets. This episode is awesome. We recorded for like two hours talking all things baseball from being a D2 player, working all, his, all the way up to his major league career. Really op- awesome episode. You're going to love this one. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 58. It is Monday, September 20th. Joined with me, as always, is Chris Colabello, and we have a special guest, Kevin Pilar from the New York Mets. But first, reminder, email us at pickle at pelotero.com or hit us up on Twitter at Pelotero Pickle. We love your questions. We get inundated with all these requests all week, every week. It's great. We actually have a request this week, so that's nice. Uh, but Chris, Kevin, how are you guys doing? You just slid by that intro, by the way. We got KP on the show slid right through it. it was nice i like it's a great intro but I, well, I can't i can't forget about the mailbag stuff that's really important like square in your screen is that brass and that's actually the it's uh the groundskeeper oh. the groundskeeper for oakland posted that on twitter last year and i really liked it so i got it put it on the canvas like in, i didn't know that was actually on the wall i thought it was like a screen and a screen no it's just a picture oh okay and the we got a couple we got a couple canvas things up on the walls yeah. uh I liked it though. It was the uh, the Oakland A's the groundskeeper, head groundskeeper, just posted on Twitter. I'm like, that picture is awesome. I love it. And I hit him hit him up with a DM. He sent me the the high res picture, and I got it. We can both confirm the grass in Oakland never looked like shit. Yeah, because you guys playing the show, so got it. He's still in the show. I'm not. Even. I know that's good. It's good. You're not because you're old. Who played better golf today? So these guys, Kevin has an off day. So thanks for joining us. Excited to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in a while. Not face-to-face like this anyway um last time i was checking in on you got drilled in the face by that fastball so feeling good is that where we're gonna start we could i, I will ask about your golf game today how we play we played all right we played all right we had fun we uh we made it we made a good team yeah good squad good it's not the first time we've been on a team in golf and uh yeah we came with it we did what we needed to do to not lose put it that way yeah sometimes in golf the best thing is just not to lose Battle of attrition. Yeah. And I can't say that about a lot of things in, in life, but golf is one of those things where if you get out of there, just at a tie, it's definitely a win. Yeah, par. Yeah. We parred. We, our par. day, we parred for the par. day. That's right. You shot par for the day? No. no. In terms of betting on the golf oh. course, it was like a par. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. No, we're not going to talk, talk about our actual we competed. scores. We yeah. competed. We played hard. We made some good birdie shots. On a par three. Birdie, yeah. I made a birdie on par three. He made a birdie on par three. I made two birdies. Yeah, we birdied both par threes, the front nine. To get through the front nine, we played carts. There were four carts. We won the first set of carts and then switched on the back. And it was good. It's good. We good. Came. I looked up I looked up the course before you got when Chris was driving there. It looked challenging. How's the wind? Was it devastating today? Yeah. Yeah. Very windy. Very windy. Beautiful day. Windy. Um very challenging course. Um, it looked tough. It, it looked like they were swamped the everywhere. Playing the same nine over for the second time, but I think it was actually worth the second time around. I don't know if it helped or hurt us. I really don't. I can't. Definitely. Yeah. If you're walking up to a shot and you think you're going to hit the same shot and then the wind was changed. It was howling. That's the thing about that place. The wind is always a factor. Link style course, high elevation, wide open, and like get closed at the same time. A lot of tough shots. But we did it. We, we battled. Proud of you guys. Thanks. Let's get into topics here. Let's get into topics. Uh, KP, you have 
kind of a unique story to the big leagues or, or not a, not the well-worn path, I guess you could say. Um, we have a lot of people who listen to the show that are high school players. They're parents of high school players that are trying to get along in their career. I want to hear about kind of like what adversity you faced coming up as like a high school player, as a college player to get to where you are now. Like what were your biggest challenges? What did you, what did you have to kind of conquer to get to where you are? Well, I mean, I think dating back to high school, I think just wanting to be an athlete first. I enjoy playing other sports. I, I, I never really wanted to specialize in anything. I figured I had time and that I would kind of figure out what path I wanted to go down, not just in sports, but in life. And I think lack of exposure kind of hurt me a little bit, but ultimately I got to, you know, where I'm at now without the lack of exposure. So that would be an important message I would send to not only the kids, but also the parents that your kids don't have to play year round baseball in order to get to the big leagues. There's a lot of different paths that people choose to and take to get to the big leagues. Um, could my journey uh, maybe been a little bit easier? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't walk that path, but I really didn't. Uh, I knew at a young age, I always really liked baseball, you know, thinking four five, six years old, you know, but at that point, what kid doesn't really want to be a professional athlete. You know, at that time, I still thought I could be a professional athlete in a lot of different sports, but it wasn't really until high school, you know, more specifically my senior year is when I kind of really took a liking to baseball, um, you know, more so than the other sports. I did enjoy playing high school football. I enjoyed playing uh, basketball in high school as well, but I felt like given my size, I felt like baseball was, you know, the path that you know, if I wanted to try to get to the top, I felt like baseball was probably the, the right choice for me. Um, in addition, I, I really just enjoyed the challenges that baseball offered every single day. I felt like this quest to be perfect at a sport where you can never be perfect in is kind of what motivated me to want to continue to work and, and, and try to reach perfection, even though that you're never going to achieve it in the sport. I still think to this day, I think that's still what motivates me to, you know, put in the hard work after you know, doing this for a long time is I, I, I strive to be perfect every time I step on the field, whether it's, you know, being perfect at the plate, taking the perfect routes in the field, uh, running the bases perfectly, swinging at the right pitches in the game. You know, I've had days where I've gone for four and I feel like I've achieved perfection in the day, but in baseball, you always have tomorrow and you get humbled and you realize that uh, it's short lived and you got to get back to work and try to achieve something that's unachievable. Um, but even going back to high school, uh, you know, I, I wasn't still a hundred percent sure that baseball is what I wanted to do. So I, I continued to play all three sports and my senior year rolls around and it's baseball season. And, you know, I think that's kind of when I made a decision that I wanted to play baseball beyond high school, that I wanted to go to college and play at that point, there was no idea of, or thought even of getting drafted. I didn't really have too many guys in my high school, too many guys in my kind of surrounding area uh, as guys I could look up to and emulate uh, kind of their path. So uh, college was the only option I felt. Uh, it was really the only option I knew. I wasn't even really kind of aware at that time that high schoolers got drafted. So college was, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, going back to lack of exposure, not playing, you know, club ball and tournament ball, I really just kind of relied on my high school season to, to speak for itself. And, um, 
you know, I was a good high school player, you know, uh, very good high school player. I wasn't elite by any means. And I think that was evident by the recruiting process that I kind of went through and didn't have a whole lot of options to, uh, you know, go division one. Um, I, I did have some smaller division one offers and in, in places far away from home, but I felt like my baseball journey, a uh, big part of it was my parents and I wanted to stay local and play. And to me, the junior college route was never an option. I, I, I was kind of at that point, I was, you know, going to college thinking that I'm going to play baseball and see what happens. But at the very least, I'm going to get my education and, and go to college and, and kind of figure it out. And I show up on the campus, Dominguez Hills, as a, a walk-on at a Division two, and, uh, you know, earn my spot and earn my playing time and was able to go out there and, and play as a freshman and become a freshman All-American. And I think at that point is when I realized that, you know, maybe I had a future in this, that maybe I could get to the next level. And kind of the light switch went off where I was going to dedicate my life to being a student athlete. And that was it. There, there was no other option for me at that point. The, the social life kind of went out the window. Um, it was school, baseball, working out, trying to eat the right foods and just really dedicating my life to, to baseball. And uh, I think even more so I went after my freshman year, I went and played summer ball. And I was kind of playing with, you know, at the time I would deem, you know, better competition than I was playing at at the Division II level. We had a lot of Division I guys uh, that were on my team that I was competing against, and I held my own. I think it, that was kind of the moment I realized that maybe I could pursue this. And, um, you know, it took me a little bit longer to, to get drafted than maybe I had anticipated, and I just – never lost focus of the goal of just trying to go out and play hard every single day and trying to, you know, be the best version of myself on the field every day. And I think, uh, you know, the chips kind of fell where they fell. You know, it took me to my senior year to get drafted. And at that point it was, you know, a late draft pick. And I don't think a lot of people, uh, you know, anticipated me getting to where I got to, especially as quick as I got to, but, but the mission never changed for me. So for those that don't know, both of you guys were D2 players that ended up getting to the big leagues, different routes where Kevin, you got drafted, Chris, you went to independent ball right away and played there for seven years. A lot of, a lot of high school players would get really hell bent on going D1 and both of you guys, I know Chris with the NACBL, Kevin, what league did you play in? The first year I played in an Arizona collegiate league and uh, junior year I played in the Northwoods league. I was similar. I played, I had a, a like little men's league kind of close to home and then ended up in the NACBL after my junior year. My sophomore year was when I got hurt. So yeah, I, I took a, I took a gap year, a rehab year. I got hurt in college and my sophomore year and had shoulder and ankle surgery. So I didn't play that year. And then I, I got invited to go to the Northwoods league on a 10 day contract hmm. to go out there as like a kind of a trial to see if I could hang. And in my mind, that started right around the time the draft started. And I remember I actually was invited to go to Dodger Stadium for a workout. I left from Dodger – I flew from – right after the workout from Dodger Stadium to Wisconsin where I was playing. And in my mind, I was going out there to just stay ready for the draft. And we'll never forget being in an indoor cage – day two of the draft and day three of the draft thinking not that I was wasting my time, but I was just kind of staying ready because I knew I was going to hear my name 
and it never happened. And next thing you know, I'm faced with a 10 day contract in the Northwoods league and end up playing every day out there. And that was definitely a huge step up from the competition that I was playing in college. And I think at, I mean, it motivated me not getting drafted. It gave me a lot of confidence playing in a wood bat league with guys that were, you know, playing at schools that were way better than mine, that were arguably way better players than me. And I went out there and I would say I dominated, but I'm, I'm a humble guy and I'd say I held my own. Um, Why do you I, say they were better players than you? So I played, I played NYCBL, the New York Collegiate Baseball League, and then I played NECBL two years. And I felt like the NYCBL, the players were tooled out. They were guys that had big, big arms, guys that hit for crazy power. And then NECBL were way less tools, but way more polished players. Like they were way better at playing baseball. I would say, I would say in the Northwoods league, you're getting a combination of both. You're definitely getting big arms, big power, but you're also getting pretty college baseball players. You mean guys on my team were guys that were playing at UCLA, USC, university of Texas, uh, university of Tennessee, like way better schools than I was playing at. Um, so in your, in your mind going there, did you think there was going to be a gap between you and them, but you had faith in yourself to kind of yeah I, I mean I definitely I think as I was in college a little bit more and like the whole idea of after your college season you go play summer collegiate and everyone wants to play in the Cape because that's the cream of the crop and then you know people argue that the Northwoods League and the Alaskan League are probably the next two best collegiate summer leagues and you know when I got that invite to go there I knew that you know, I was going to be, you look at the roster and you just see names. I don't really know any of these guys, but you see all these big time division one schools. And yeah, you, you, you assume that these guys are going to be, you know, a step up from, you know, where I'm at and definitely a step up from the competition that I was playing. But, um, you know, that's the funny thing about baseball. You get out there and, and, uh, you know, stuff happens when you get out there. I think that was part of the perception that I felt too, right. Where I went to, I mean, for you to say Dominguez Hills to me, obviously being a D2 guy, I would look at that and go, all right, well, they're a better version of a Division II school than we are, right? An assumption where I won 44 games in four years. And then I would look at the rosters of summer ball teams that see BYU and James Madison and William and Mary and UVM when Bobby was playing for, for Concord. That's right. You were on there, Tukes. Oh, yeah. um, but I think there's this perception in our minds as we're growing up that because a player is a division one player or that they, you know, they get tagged as D one or D two or D three or whatever it is. And it really has no bearing on how good you are or can be. Right. And I think obviously he's living proof of that. I feel like I am in some ways too, really what it comes down to is perception, right. It's people's perception of who you are more than anything else. And I think that's why, you know, especially even before I got to Toronto, him and I, I kind of was drawn to him knowing his story and his background, like he's a grinder. And I think that's, that's the, if there's a compliment, that I would want uh, the number one compliment you could give me is that I'm a gamer. I'm a, uh, I'm a grinder. I'm a guy that can kind of battle through anything. And that's not to downplay your skill set because I think in your case, a lot of times it almost gets, you know, overplayed to the fact where you've done some stuff, man. You've had a, you had a huge year in San Francisco had a really good year last year with Boston had a big year for us in Toronto. And that was playing through a lot of injuries. So I think it's just more of a testament of, of, of how you kind of got through the system or, kind of work your way through school and then obviously get drafted later. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I've had time to kind of reflect on my career as it's getting obviously closer to the end than it is the beginning. I don't know when the end's going to be, but I've had time to kind of reflect on what I've been able to accomplish, what I've been able to do. 
and I've thought about what do I want people to say about me when my career is over? And to his point, the biggest compliment I can get, and I don't take it as any disrespect to my skill set and what I've been able to accomplish, but one, that he was a good teammate or a great teammate, and two, that this guy was a gamer, this guy was a grinder, this guy he was a guy that you wanted on your team. This is a guy you wanted up in big situations, whether or not I came through or didn't come through, but you had confidence that I was going to be able to, you know, make something happen. And lastly, the fact that, you know, I was able to play a lot of, through a lot of things in, in my career injury wise, and that my teammates knew that, you know, unless I was dead, I, I was going to be out there and I was going to go to war with them. So I want to bridge it right now from, we, we were talking about the, the college playing up, playing against competition that's perceived to be better. Do you guys feel, and this for both you guys, playing at a D2 level, feeling maybe a little disrespected or like you got to be a little grindy, you got to compete more going up to the major league level where you're facing the best of the best. You're facing, Chris, we've talked about the past, like the Kershaws, the Verlanders, you're facing the name on the back of the jersey. Do you feel like the route that you guys took made you guys better competitors at the big league level? And how, like, how did that, mindset carry with you throughout your careers yeah I mean I definitely see I I think that I was always I think I was always a grinder even before like I was labeled a grinder being a d2 guy I think that's just how I always played I think that's just how my parents raised me and my brother to play I mean I think the term grinder gets thrown around a lot but I think I just learned to play the game the right way I learned to play hard um but to your point I think I think when you're facing these elite guys at this level, I don't think they really care who you are. I think we care a little bit more about who they are. And I think what's really helped me in my career is understanding that I'm going to fail, that I stopped looking and caring so much who was on the mound. I started caring a little bit more about, you know, how I was going to prepare for those guys. And we had this conversation, I think earlier today, I, I learned about, and I still do it today. I don't expect to fail when I go up to home plate, but in the back of my mind, I know it's a reality. So I don't, the losses don't, failing at baseball doesn't affect me anymore. Like the, the greatest guys in this game fail may way more than they succeed. It took me a lot longer to realize that. So going into these tough at-bats when you're facing the Kershaws, the Scherzers, the Verlanders, I have all the confidence in the world that I'm going to succeed, but I've also learned that they make a lot of money by getting us out that they've been very successful because they get a lot of guys out, that that is a reality that you are going to get out more times than you succeed. So I feel like, especially when you face those guys, you're kind of almost in a win-win situation. Like no one expects this guy or me to have success off these guys. And maybe even the pitcher thinks that way. There's no way this guy's going to get a hit off me. So I just go up there and you, I think the, the longer you do it, I think the first time I faced my open, my first at bat in the big leagues was I've John Lesson. And, it, and that was at a time when John Lester was in Boston and he was arguably one of the pitchers in baseball. And it's like, I hyped my, I overhyped up the situation, obviously being my debut, there was a lot of emotions going on, but it was also like, Oh shit, I got to face John Lester. And then you realize he's just a human being. He's got good stuff. Uh, you know, the reality is he may get you out, but if I succeed, like I started seeing those things as like getting into bonus rounds. Yeah. I think as a, as when you're young, when you first come up, for me, anyway, I, I had all, I had this different route, this different path, right? And I held myself to this this standard of like needing to be perfect. And to his point, the more I matured, the older I got, the more I was able to just kind of step back and say, "He's a human, I'm a human." And I think 
the more you do that as a player and, and exactly what you said, your failures no longer feel like failures. We, we grow up in this world where we have this expectation that we need to excel and we need to be the best player on the field every day in order to be the best player on the field. And then you almost set yourself, like you set standards that are almost unmatchable and that could be what shatters confidence. You can. I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask specifically as Kevin grabs his uh, his burger here, specifically when you face tougher pitchers. uh, And I'm almost curious, Kevin, too, about kind of where you started in the league, the the pitching, the the reports that you would get, like the pregame hitting reports. What is, how has that changed from the beginning of your career to now in terms of all all the advanced stuff and all the metrics and all the stuff. But specifically when you face those tougher guys, I love your mindset saying that it's like a bonus at bat where it's like, it's a freebie. It's you're playing with house money almost. Is there a specific strategy you have for different guys? Are you looking for a specific pitch, a specific zone? I'm going to share, I want to share a story about you were there for this first time facing Kershaw, my rookie year, not my rookie. I guess it would be my rookie year. My first time uh, being up opening day, I got off to a pretty good April at a really tough beginning of May and I was really struggling and I felt like I needed to make a change. We got rained out. So I spent. You're talking two, about Scherzer. Scherzer. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. Scherzer. Scherzer. We were in the cage grinding. Out yeah. There. I was this in the cage. Awesome. I was in the cage grinding probably three, four hours. It was during a, it was during a rain out, had nothing else to do. Coach said, Hey, why don't you try to do a toe tap? I said, sure. So fast forward to the next day. It's a double header. I don't play the first game. Second game. Who's pitching Scherzer. I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? He punches me out three times. I stink right now. Why don't I try this toe tap, right? That was this mindset that I went in with. I got to try something different. What a better guy to try it off than Scherzer because my expectation was he's better than me. He's probably going to get me out. That I kind of subconsciously went into this bonus round, but I said, what if, what if I get him? What if I get him? So first at bat, take him deep. Next at bat, get a hit. Third at bat, take him deep. And the rest was history. Yeah, literally the and rest was, was history. It was yeah. the beginning of our eleven, yeah, so our first eleven. Yeah, game I think winner. we, I think we went on one eleven straight after yeah. that. But I think you guys that was kind of like this Astros. mindset that I had. That, but to your point, early on in my career, you know, I think people forget that, you know, you get to this level. I think people forget that one that we're human beings, but two, like I'm a baseball fan. Like I grew up watching baseball. I grew up watching guys like Scherzer and Kershaw and stuff. So like dating back to, you know, 15, 14, you know, you know, being a young kid in the big leagues and the lack of information that we have now, like I'm basing a lot of the stuff of watch I see on TV or play on video games. I'm like, their stuff's really good. I watch them on ESPN. I watch it highlights like, damn, they got good stuff, you know? And then, you know, not to say we were living in a stone age in 2015, but you're like, Hey, he's got fastball curveball changeup, maybe some percentages, you know, we didn't understand vertical horizontal break, stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, at that point, I think when I was young, I was still very raw and I was just like, I'll just see it and hit it. Right. And then I think what's really changed is probably the last two, three years when pitchers got a little bit more advanced than hitters and they, the idea of tunneling became a thing where like literally you can't hit the same pitch. Like you can't just see it and hit it anymore because they make everything look alike. You know, in 2015, you're facing the elite pitchers. It's still very kind of cookie cutter like he's gonna throw your fastballs in sliders away he'll mix in the change up off of it but now everyone literally throws everything to a side of the plate middle of the plate and make everything look like each other so now you now with the information we have like the see see it and hit it idea hardly ever happens you pit when pitches overlap speed wise and 
movement wise, you could still kind of go up there and be like, okay, I'm gonna take the fastball to right, slider, you know, maybe I pull it. But literally, I feel like you're in a point where you have to almost sit on a pitch in a location. And to our point, we had this conversation earlier, you still got to just stay to your strengths. Like I got to understand what I do well. And the pitcher obviously knows what I do well. And he obviously has success probably doing something else. But having this understanding that even the best pitchers in the world are still human beings and they're due to miss. You just can't miss the ones when they, they make mistakes. That's how you survive in this league. Yeah. I, the biggest change for me was I, I sat there. and I, My first couple of years in the big leagues, I almost – I felt like I almost gave pitchers too much credit in the sense that I was I was so worried about what Bobby said before, the name on the back, and thinking about, okay, well, this is Verlander. He's going to be so nice. I'll never forget the series we went to went to Detroit, Bobby, when I, after I'd hurt my thumb. And, I, and I'm already messed up in the head because I hurt my thumb. And I get the three-day scouting report in my thing, and it's Verlander, Scherzer, and Robbie Ray, three days in a row. And I remember thinking to myself, "That's like, an over twelve. Yeah, how much? Yeah, exactly. I'd already teed it up, right? And you know, if I was playing with a little bit more confidence and feeling good about myself, I probably would have been better. But I psyched myself out going in that series, and I finished the series over eleven to that point. And you know, it's it's. I think I think a lot of times exactly what you're saying. What I what I did moving forward was I just started getting more aggressive, right? Like I didn't want to get to two strikes. I hate hit with two strikes. He he's way better. Kevin Pillar is way better than Chris Calabello at going bat to ball with two strikes, and that's I think part of where you get like some of your gamer grinder type, you know. The, the, yeah, the and you run for the walls, sort of thing. Yeah. like with like, no regard for his body. Yeah, but I mean, like I I, I don't have that. I don't have the capabilities that he does. And I think a lot of times for, for him, when for him, he needs to shrink it where I, I almost needed to, I almost needed to expand it and make sure that I, I attacked more early. Um, so again, it's, it's playing your strengths, right? Like for yeah, me, but I think that's right also center. to your point. I think that's where, um, you know, the game has changed a lot too, just in my career. My career hasn't been all that long, but the game has changed dramatically where, I think at some point early in my career, my bat to ball skills were valued where I could get the two strikes. And I could just put the ball in play, try to make something happen, move runners, you know, force defense to make plays. The game has significantly changed whether I like it or don't like it. I, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to see it get back to a, a little bit more of a, a pure form of baseball, but I've also had to survive in this league and, and learn to adapt. And, you know, this, this year, for example, is the worst I've hit batting average wise, but this is the most, productive I've probably been in my career and I had to kind of switch my mindset to what he was talking about understanding what I do really well not fearing striking out not just trying to put the ball in play but literally just trying to do damage all the time and so it doesn't mean I'm going to be successful doing damage every time but I'm going to hunt a better pitch more than likely and I'm going to try to get my best swing off and whatever happens after that whether I hit on the ground I hit it in the air I hit over the fence like that's literally the mindset that I've had to train myself to have over the last couple of years, because I've had good years where I've hit for a higher average, maybe a little bit less production, didn't walk a whole lot, uh, you know, drove in runs by not getting hits and just learned how the game started to value players a little bit more. And you got to play the game. You want to survive. You know, I, I tried to fight it for a couple of years and wanted to be true to myself and, and be the player that I felt like I could be. But at the end of the day, it's how I, I pay the bills. And this is how, teams value and I had to learn how to switch my mind mindset to I'm not just going to put it in play with two strikes unless it's needed unless I really have to advance a runner unless there's a runner in scoring position they're giving me an RBI and 
you know, I don't still don't really think they value it that much, but it makes me feel better when I come to the dugout. My teammates appreciate me a little bit more, but I've learned how to, I've had to trick myself into being a little bit more passive and taking some more pitches and really just trying to hunt the pitch that I feel like I can do the most damage on. How much of that is coming from like front office or like, is it free agency considerations? Is it? Yeah, no, I think it's going to game of baseball. I think, I think, I mean, I think you see it. I think you see it throughout baseball. I think you see what teams value. I think you see how your peers are getting rewarded for what they're doing. And, you know, we're able to see their statistics. We played against these guys. We see what they do well. But I think when I really learned it was after the year in San Francisco, when I had what I thought was one of my better years, I hit for a high average. I hit the most home runs. I drove in a shit ton of runs. And I was going to my last year arbitration. thought I was going to, you know, set I thought I was set up really well. I was like, shit, I got traded four days in the season, switched leagues, went from East Coast to West Coast, had to pick up my family. I had to fucking learn everything on the fly. I had to, you know, I left everything I knew. I had to, it was in a new clubhouse for the first time around new guys, had to make friends, you know, try to have a new fan base, embrace me. And I went out there and I accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish. And I'm like, damn, I just set myself up real nice. I remember getting my last hit of the year uh game 161 and i was like fuck i had the option do i want to play the last day of the year or they said i could have the day off and i i had a nice line drive up the middle off canley jansen got the first base we had one game left i sat i sat in the clubhouse for a while i was eating and i was thinking you know what i'm very very happy with the way my year went that's gonna be the last swing i take this year and i'm gonna go into you know arbitration with a pile of numbers that I was able to accumulate for the year. And I was like, fuck, I just, I just did it. Like, you know, this is my first time I was making good money the year before, but like I was getting into that next level where like, shit, like I'm making a lot of money, like shit, I I earned this. And then you go, whatever the tender deadline is, you get on tender. You're like, holy shit, what happened? And then you're you're thinking, but then you're thinking, okay, rebuilding team, you know, I'm making a lot of money. There's no way another team's not going to pick me up for what I'm going to make in arbitration. And no one fucking called. And then you're like, okay, what the hell is going on? And then you you live it and you have these conversations with your agent who's having conversations with front offices and GMs and managers of other teams. And you're like, shit, you know, the, the things that I valued are things that they're not valuing. I thought I had a good year. Like, damn, 21 homers, 90 RBIs, hit 270. You're like, what more can you ask from a player? Yeah. Still playing good defense at the time. And then you started, then that's when I really started to learn about you know, what we call saber metrics or advanced metrics and stuff like that. And it was like the, the light bulb went off for me that shit, the things that I value as a player are not the things that they value. And as much as I want to be true to myself and be the player that I want to be, this is how I take care of my family. This is how I want, I want to stay in the league as long as possible that I had to have this kind of change in thought process. What is really important. And, you know, we're employees. We gotta, we gotta play the game. We gotta do what your employer wants you to do. And, Unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way and, you know, I heard a lot of things that I didn't want to hear, but I think it allowed me to grow as a player. And I tried to do, I tried to make those changes. Um, you know, last year I, I started to walk a little bit more. I started to swing the bat a little bit less. I started to value making better decisions at home plate. Um, you know, and I also think, you know, having the short season last year, I think, I was able to do it for a, a small period of time, but I've also had this long body of work doing something, you know, a different way. And I still don't think teams, 
you know, were a believer in what I did in the 60 game season last year. And it made free agency a little bit tough going into free agency again, but you know, I'm excited. I'm interested to see what, you know, I want to finish this year strong and I'll go back out as a free agent again and see if, you know, teams value what I, you know, your evolution. Was able, yeah, yeah. The evolution, evolution of me as a player. That's cool. I appreciate the insight there. That's some inside type. Uh, that's great to hear. And I think the, the casual fan doesn't understand that. They're just watching guys on TV trying to, you know, tell them what to do <laughs> watching games. Yeah, and, I, and, you know, to that point, I, you get, you, you, you know, you talk to people about like, where you hear fans, you interact with people, you know, my family, my friends at home, and, you know, maybe they don't like the direction baseball is going in, you know, the, you know, the three true, the, the truth, what are the three, three outcomes, yeah, three, three true, true outcomes, outcomes of the yeah. game. We want more action. You hear it on, you know, MLB network and ESPN. And you hear about all these people talking about how baseball is boring, but players are not dumb. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, a lot of people think that Stubborn, players, maybe. yeah, people, they think the other players are dumb, but like we've learned like me over the course of my career, what was once valued is no longer valued anymore. And all of us want to make money and you just learn to play the game. Like if they're not going to, they're not going to, you know, not reward me for striking out. Why would I, why would I care? Well, if they're not going to penalize me for striking out, why would I care about striking out? Why would I not just continue to swing hard and try to drive the ball every single time? Um, that's what guys are getting paid for. You see the DJ, the Mays of the world making 90 million over the course of his career. And then you see the stands of his career making 300 million, which guy do I want to be? Yeah. You know, not to say DJ, the is not a great player and he's not, he's making a shit ton of money, but the guy that is the contact guy that hits for a high average, that does everything right on the baseball field in the eyes of, you know, general manners and ownership group are less valuable. So, why wouldn't I try to be the other guy? I had a really hard time with it. I had I my whole my whole career, right? My whole life, I was hit for average, hit for average, hit for average, right? And then I mean in 15, like I you know, I had 321 and I'm still proud of that. I'm more proud of that than anything else I've ever done. And here we are, and the game the game's not telling me like no, it's like it never happens. They don't care, right? Or even that I hit. 300 in the big and then the minor league. Well, the thing I want to, you have young listeners. It's not to say that I don't care about striking out and that I don't want to hit for an eye average. It's just, it's just part of the game. Yeah, it's just, just you just learn that it's part of the game. Like you're going to strike out. And you also learn that pitching at this level is a lead. And, you know, sometimes they execute pitches and sometimes their stuff is better than you that given day. Um, you also understand it's hard to score runs by just continually just getting hits. Like team score runs because, and when I mean damage, it doesn't mean always being a home run. It just means hitting the ball hard, the ball hard. and trying to find yeah. gaps. It's a lot easier to score with a double than it is a single. I think I think for the most part, right, I think I like the idea of how it can help us psychologically deal with our failures, right? Because I think that's the biggest challenge. What, the thing that I had, a tr- I had the most trouble with as a player was emotionally dealing with my failures and going 0 for 8 or 0 for 12 or whatever it was or 1 for 20, like – those things beat me up mentally. I never, I never did well at like looking past that because I'd be thinking about how it reflected my overall numbers. And now the message that I try to pass along to young players all the time is like separate it all. Just like it's it, one day is so independent of the next, and it's not going to impact the way you can contribute to your team winning on any given day. And that's the part that I think I wish I'd learned sooner. And I think that's probably a little bit more what the analytical world's trying to 
kind of dig into where it doesn't matter if you hit 200 or 300, you can still be productive. And the argument is Grandall and Sanino guys that are, you know, very low 200s and you're looking at 820 OPSs, 850, 900 OPSs. So I get it. Um, that was for me, I had a hard, I had a hard time adjusting to it. Well, I mean, I, I think if you're competitive at anything you do, especially baseball, you know, I, I, I take the failures a little bit easier, but I've learned to judge what, what is actual failure. Yeah. Me not getting a hit is not failure. Me swinging at the right pitch is always going to be successful. The things I still struggle with in baseball is really hard, round ball, round bat. Like you can take my A swing and you can still miss it. And I could swing at the right pitch and I could still pop it straight up in the air. So like the thing I value the most is one, just honestly walking to the plate, feeling confident. Two is did I swing at the right pitch? And then the other components are, you know, yeah, a all, distant third and fourth. And they're all know? out of your control too, right? Did I get my did I get my best swing off? Throughout the season, you're not always gonna feel good. And you might even feel good for a week straight, and then you show up one day and you're like, shit, my swing feels terrible. I don't understand how it is. I'm doing the same exact drills in the cage. I'm hitting BP the same way. I'm using the same bat. I'm freaking using the same batting gloves. Like nothing, nothing should change. It's just it's hard. It's hard to repeat it thousands and thousands and thousands of times over the course of a year. So to his point, am I happy when I come home at night and I was over four? No, I'm not happy about it, but I've learned to judge myself on a lot of other different things that are within my control. Can I can't, I can't control yeah. getting a hit. I can't control finding a gap. I can't control where the defense is going to play. I can't control what the pitcher is going to throw. I can ultimately, yeah, the umpire's doing a good job. I can ultimately control the way that I walked into the box and feeling confident, I can control the pitches that I want to swing at. And after that, then I've used this a lot today, but I say, Jesus, take the wheel. Right. But it's, it's true. I mean, and, and also to his point too, I think what has helped someone like me in my career, been able to stay in this league through these maybe prolonged periods of times where statistically I was not successful was being able to separate the offensive and defensive uh, side, understanding that, that yeah. I can still be very productive on a baseball field, just playing my position by being a good teammate, by, you know, cheering my, yeah. my teammates on valuing winning. And then, you know, like the other part, playing good I mean, defense, go make a like play. you go, yeah. make a play. go make a play. And that's, I mean, honestly, I, I was almost, uh, I was almost mad at how much credit you got for, being a good defender because I think it took away from I think people acknowledging how good you were offensive and um, but to that point I think you were able to you know really solidify yourself as a player and obviously I think everybody always reverts back to that catch in Toronto when you scale the wall like Spider-Man um, I wasn't up yet but I remember seeing it going man oh man and the funny thing was is that spring training and I'll, I'll never forget this this was we were playing golf it was me you go go and Buck Martinez and Buck said something to to be like, hey, looking like, you know, fourth outfit or whatever. And, I, and you're like, hey, like, it doesn't have to be the fourth outfitter. And, and this is just a, a microcosm of, of your persona. And I think what I want to pass along to people is like, I looked at, at Buck and I went, what do you mean fourth outfitter? Like, he's going to be the starting center fielder. Like, he's going to be the starting center fielder because I knew him. And I, I think that's just an attitude that you had too, that you carried into that year as well. And, uh, yeah. I think there's a fine, I think there's a fine line of being cocky. And I think there's a, you know, I think you have to be confident and I get reminded of the, not so much now, but you know, once I kind of established myself in the big leagues and with Gibby 
when I was sitting on the bench my first year getting called up, DeRosa was on the bench with me, and I would always tell him, like, in the most confident, not cocky way, I'd just be like, I hope they give me a chance. I can't wait for them to give me a chance. I'm ready. I'm ready. And I would always, like, you know, talk to DeMarlo Hale on the bench, who was our bench coach at the time, and be like, you know, if you need me, I'm ready. I still do it yeah. to this day. Like, I know my role on this team, but I, I believe in myself. And I do it in a respectful way, but I always remind our – manager now and our bench coach and it's a little easier as you get a little bit older and you have a track record and yeah. you know you're established but I always walk by like four fifth inning and just you know let them know hey if you want to score some run daddy's on the bench you know <laughs> I'll be ready I'll be in the cage come get me when you want yeah. if you need if you need one in the seats yeah. you know and it's not cocky it's just being confident in your ability and That's you know awesome. I think you have to have that in this game and I think you have to I think the more you're confident in yourself and I think others start to become confident in you and it starts to become a little bit more contagious. And yeah. I think that's how you get people to believe in you. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And then the last part is you got to go out and do it. You know, I, it would have been one thing for me to sit around and 13 and 14 or even that day golfing and talking about, Hey, you're talking about fourth outfielder. Like I'm going to start, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to start, you know, I believe I should start, but you still got to go out there and perform. You know, and I think that's what we were both able to do. You, you stay confident. You wait for your opportunity. You might, you know, push the boundaries of being cocky sometimes or maybe too confident, but you got to go out there and back it up. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. Um, as long as you back it up. Absolutely. As long as you back it up. And if you don't back it up, then you just go back to whatever level you're playing at. And you, yeah, what's the you, worst thing you have? You go back and you continue to work on your craft. I mean, you were sent down. I was sent down numerous times before I stayed yeah. in the big leagues. And I came up with the same mindset every single time. Like, this is my time. Yeah. When you need me, let me go. You know, and it, it wasn't successful at first, but it didn't stop me from going back to AAA and being the same confident guy and being like, hey, daddy's home. Daddy's going to rake real quick. I'll, you know, I'm going to be leaving in about, you know, 10 days. They're going to need me up there. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't go out and do it, I'd still probably be in AAA or I'd be doing something different. But I had to have that belief in myself and you go out there and prove it and see what happens but here we are eight years of service time later yeah well and i'll never forget for me too uh coming to toronto was so good for me because i got to i got to be around guys it was funny because uh, you know i had a relationship with you a little bit before and go go as well because we played against each other so much the il and spring training was great and i knew you know you're gonna make the team and and go go was kind of in between but he came up how after did you like make the team that year i didn't I can't went to Triple A. I had to rake no, my. When did you? How did you make? Like, oh, when did you make the team? I came up in May. I came up May fifth because Saunders was like had been hurt or whatever. No, Saunders was hurt. That's how he, I. He had, yeah, that's how I hurt. started. But Valencia banged up his ankle. Batista hurt his shoulder, and I think it's either Johnny uh, Tollison was up, and Valencia was on the shelf. They needed somebody to play the outfield that night, so I had to come up because Carrera had just gone up. So I had to come up, and it was going to be like a couple days. And then he was hitting in front of me first night. He was hitting seventh. I was hitting eighth. And I was like, normally I would have been offended by hitting eighth. But that I, I cared so much to be with that team. And then um, every time I got a hit, he was on base. And the, the first two nights I had six. And you kept, I, I still watch the videos. I see you point at me, which was exciting. Um, and, you know, it made me feel like being around you, like you rubbed off on me a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Your confidence. I appreciate, I appreciate that. That's why we're friends. That's why you're on my podcast right now. Good. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, kind of similar because it's still going to tap into some Blue Jay stuff. But the whole concept of playing with emotion, a lot of people talk about this now. The bat flips are all the rage. Uh, I want to know 
how you guys feel about playing with emotion specifically around like the playoff race. Kevin, you're in the, in the midst of it right now with the Mets. You guys are both have playoff experience. You're st- you guys are in it. You guys are alive. alive. You're yeah. in the midst. And the math, the math says we're in it. I just saw 30 for 30 and you guys are in it. You guys are the, the Mets energy is real. Yeah. But the 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 whole like shifting from regular season to off to, to, to the postseason, the the way emotions can play a role in this game. I, I feel like pitchers are it's easier for them to p- play with emotion where they're going out every fifth day and they can kind of empty the tank. How do you where do you guys stand on on the role of emotion, controlling emotion, like riding waves or staying level? feel like both of you guys went out and just kind of stayed pretty steady with emotion but what's like what's burning on the inside and then when you get to the postseason how do you slow it down or do you need to feel like you need to slow it down or do you just roll with it um well I'm kind of like I would say I'm kind of like a hybrid I'm, I'm a little bit more old school I like I like the purity of the game but I also like the new school being able to express yourself and celebrate stuff but I also big believer in timing is very important when you do it and when you you go through 162, not even to count the playoffs, you just realize that uh, it's a long season, that you have to stay even keel most of the time, and you can't you can't get overly hyped about every single thing that you do successfully in this game because it's wasted energy and it's uh, you just realize it's a long season, um, but. Obviously, we are human beings and we have emotions. And I feel like when the moment is right, I think it's 1,000% appropriate to, you know, show your emotion, whether it's a backflip, whether it's, you know, pumping up your dugout, whether it's, you know, there's time and place when you got to talk shit to the other team too. Like when that stuff happens and it's real and it's warranted, I, I think it's appropriate. But when you got guys pimping homers down eight runs in game you know, 42 of the season on a 10 win team, you know, it, it, it starts to be a little bit more. And I, I understand it. Like the game has shifted to a, a place of we're not just athletes. We're not just members of, I'm not just a member of the New York Mets. I'm Kevin Plar, the brand. And we're trying to promote that because it is part of it and it can be lucrative and it can, you know, take a guy who's maybe, uh, a borderline or unknown player and make them famous overnight, whether it's on social media, whether it's on MLB network, whether it's, you know, guys like me in the league, guys that are fans of the game, watching something and be like, Oh shit, that guy did something really cool. And, you know, it's being played over and over on the TV, on your phone. Um, but I just think that emotion needs to be, has to have the right time. And it has to be authentic. It has to be authentic. Be authentic. It can't be, it can't just be like, I'm doing this because I want to grow my brand and I want to be famous, whether it, it's for one day. It, it, you, I can see through that, right? And I don't know how – I assume most people are probably like that, right? You feel like – Yeah, can, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of guys in the game today that I'm like, God, that's so fucking selfish. Yeah, it's tired. But then, I mean, they're also they're, – they're talented players and, you know, maybe they're younger players and maybe they still have some stuff to learn. But, you know, I – a week ago, I – I mean, I think it was the 9-11 game. I had a, I had a big hit. In yeah, the that's why I texted you LFG. Yeah, I had a big hit, like, in the seventh or eighth inning. It put us up an extra run and Fist pump. got through the hole, and I flipped the bat, and I yelled, and, like, 
the emotion was real and authentic. Like it wasn't premeditated. I didn't like walk up and be like, if I drive in this run, like I'm making a scene. It was just being so engulfed in the moment and understanding that it was so much about winning and how important a win would have been for our team and what we're ultimately trying to accomplish. And you're able to come up in a moment and achieve what you're trying to achieve, you know, individually, but also more importantly, from a, a team's standpoint, like it was a big run and like that stuff just happens. And when it's authentic, it's real. And I think people, I think people around the league, I think people in your clubhouse, I think people that know you understand like, damn, that was real raw emotion. Like I wish you would do it more. And that's something I've been told a lot from like my friends and family and like even some of my former teammates, like, I wish you would show more emotion. I'm like, one, I feel like every time I succeed on the baseball field, that's what I've worked hard that's what I prepared to do. And that's literally what I get paid to do. Like I go out, I get paid to drive and runs and get hits and steal bases and, and make plays in that field. So I feel like I'm just doing my job, but there's a certain time and place where Kevin Clark, the human being does something that's great, extraordinary in the right time where I'm human and I have emotion. I got to let it out. And, and it feels good. It feels good, but it's never, it's never premeditated. And I know we're probably going to get on the topic of Batista's bat flip. And I think that's, it was such a – it was so unfair what was put on him um, in the moment because no one in their right mind has that moment premeditated. Yeah, That's just raw, raw, pure emotion and on the biggest stage in the world. Because um, not – you can't even – I don't even want to get into all the details of the things that happened leading up to that. I mean, we all so know. That was the wildest inning, the wildest yeah. sequence ever in a baseball yeah, game. Yeah, it's not even just the wild – it's not the wild inning. It was a wild series. It was already kind of a rivalry. And then you think about he resurrected he, res he, he resurrected yeah. his career in Toronto. He had been there for a long time. He was there in 08 or 09, yeah, five, six, Toronto. seven years of yeah. – you know, being Jose Batista hit lean the league at homers and, and never win, never, and never, teams, and never winning, teams, yeah. never winning. And then you're on the biggest stage in the biggest moment wearing this jersey that's, you know, in some way saved his career, resurrected his career, and you're the guy to do it. It's, you can't script that stuff. Yeah, and that's that, so his answer, he sounds, you sound completely, you know, this is probably why you and I are friends because, like, it, it's got to be real, man. I, I, I can't go to a triple A game and watch a guy hitting a buck 90 do a bat flip in the fifth inning of a three, one game and feel like that's not scripted. Right. Like I can't do that. That's there's nothing okay with that to me. There, there's nothing cool about it. And if you think it's cool, maybe you're just an idiot. I don't know. Like I, well, I think, I think we've, I think we've, I don't want to say we, I think be much bigger than us talking on this podcast. I think industry wise, I think society wise has deemed it to be cool. And who doesn't want to be cool? So I think people just do it more yeah, often. Yeah, when because... you force cool, then you're not cool. You know what I mean? When you try to, it's like when you're on the playground when you're a little kid, right? I mean, how often does something on your phone pop up or like a guy pimped a homer and you're like, you're looking at it and you're like, oh, that was a double A homer and it was, they were down ten nothing in the eighth inning, but it's a thing. Like, oh damn, how yeah, far did this bat flip go? And you're like, like no okay, presses, well, bad press yeah, I, I disagree with that. I know. <laughs> I think we can all disagree with that. Try getting suspended for a steroid you didn't take. That's definitely bad press. That isn't good press, right? Like, you're like, oh, cool. Not, like, not you got to the Colorado brand. What? Well, yeah, that was not good for the brand. Hey, I used to think. I used to think that you know, there's no bad. There's no such thing as bad publicity, but it's it's not true. That's a false statement. <laughs> it's definitely a false. You know, hey. He's had this burger. I'm so I don't. I've wanted to tell him to eat this burger I mean, for like yeah. the last twenty minutes because like 
just right. staring at it. I think that, see, th- this is now like officially authentic. This is like authentic. This is like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, it needs to be real. If it's true, like if you're hungry, eat. If you're, if you're sad, cry. If you're happy, What if you smile. want to backflip down eight nothing? What if that's, what if that's you being authentic? That, but that also means you're a turd, I think, like just generally speaking, because it, the homer, ha- the moment has to be for the right reason, right? It's for the squad. If you hit your 500th, and you're down eight nothing, and you backflip like cool, like that's, well, that's a, a moment. That's a good individual moment. Bobby, right? give me your take on it. So I, I really I can't stand bat, bat flips that aren't moments drive me crazy. Uh, my my honest take on it is like, is that what you're really trying to achieve? Is that the moment you're trying to celebrate? Is it like you're trying to like, like if if you got sent down a triple A, you're not going to backflip any homers. There's no way because it's not. It's not why you're there. It's not Absolutely. that isn't the that isn't the victory moment that you're trying to like capitalize on. It's it does it's you're not where you're supposed to be to do that sort of thing. So when I see a high school kid, I remember seeing one on Instagram. It was some high school kid. It was like a 17 to nothing game. The right fielder came in to pitch. It's like you're you're hitting this bomb off a kid that's not even a pitcher. And he like went straight vertical, like vertical, 30 feet in the air. You're just showing somebody up at that point. I think it's really yeah, you know why he did it for the exact reason we're talking he did about it for the gram. He just did it Once for the gram. I, just, I don't like it. I think right. any any bat flip that's we we talk about natural actions on dismounts. So if like you pull out the sword and you let it go, like Trevor Stories when he like when he pulls it out and throws it sideways, love it. I don't like I don't mind at all because he puts his head down and he runs. It's it's a cool dismount. And if you got it, if you know you got it, I think you're allowed to do something. I hate the vertical. I hate the I hate the intentional vertical bat throw. Anything besides that, I'm okay with. You had you had a pretty good one. You kind of had a little hot bat against uh, Washington the other day. Oh, that one was nice. That was a slummy. That was nice. Those yeah. yeah. one over the bullpens. That if was. You hit a four run homer. Usually, like if you hit a four run homer, the game like the game's in reach and it's a big. That run. was a good one. That was a good one because you just kind of like tossed to the side and it was very you did like, a little Sammy shuffle too. I think. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, you know what? It's so weird. Like thinking back. It's not a lot, a lot of times that I know I get them. I mean, it's starting to happen a little bit more that I know like, oh, damn, that was a good swing. I got it. But like, it's just weird. I do that Sammy Sosa hop. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like as cool as I can get. It's, it plays. It plays. You are cool. You're <laughs> like, I, 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 I'll be honest with you though. And like, I can't like, once again, this is how like, it can't just be premeditated, but I'm just, I really, really one time really just want to stand up on a homer. Like I want to know I got it, and like I'm just standing there, and I'm be like, "Fuck that!" I the, just hit that thing. Shot but I now it's like that. I hit it, and I'm like, I know it's good, but my first reaction is run, run. and I'm like, I'm not running, I'm hopping because I know I got this thing. But I really want to stand up on one. I always knew CC got it. He would hit homers to Oppo on TV, and people would be like, "Oh, I popped up." I'm like, "No, he walked out. It's gone." If he walked out, he knew he got it. Yeah. But uh, I, I saw I saw Ruben Sierra. I saw a clip on Twitter last night of Ruben Sierra. He did like a Barry Bonds. The uh, uh, Ricky Henderson, he's picking at himself. He did like a double spin on two, the way to first. Four. It was crazy. Rubens, do you say Ruben Sierra or yeah, Marius Sierra? Huh? Ruben what? Sierra, Ruben Ruben Sierra, Sierra. Like 1987? Yeah, Ruben? yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It was somebody being like, Oh, see, they they bat flipped in the 90s, you can't hate it now. But he did like it was like he's he's picking his jersey left and right, he's shuffling, he's spin moving. It was pretty intense, really flat okay. swing. I don't was remember. It, What's that? Was it a big homer? I don't know. So, like, side view. So there was like 
there was Ricky, right? If you think about Ricky back in the day, like Ricky used to showtime everything. And I mean, he played on some good teams in Oakland. He's like, he's like Deion Sanders. He's showtime. Yeah, and Deion, Deion, like, but they, he had that cachet because it was authentic. Like Ricky still talks in the third person to this day. You know, he'll, he'll come down to minor league camp, tell a kid, he go, when Ricky stole a base, when Ricky took his lead, like that's who he was, right? So the, if you're going to be like that, you have to be like that all the time because that's how I know it's real. If, if it's real, I'm cool with it because I'm not going to look at I never really it. thought about it that way because there's some, once again, I'm not going to name names. There's some guys in this league. I'm like, damn, again? But maybe that's just who they are. I can. I don't know if it makes it any better, I can but usually I can justify it. You can usually tell when. Like, once you get to know the person right. I don't know this guy yeah. or these guys. I mean, if you're wearing two different color cleats, like <laughs> maybe a that's aggressive. a pretty indication that that's just who you are. Yeah. It's a little aggressive. He just sent, he just sent me the clip. Yeah, of click Ruben's. on that. Get a, We're going to get a first look. We're going to get a first look at Ruben. Oh, uh, I actually remember this. But I like I actually really like the – it was like a Ray Lewis shuffle out of the box. Yeah, that was, uh, that was Ray coming out of the tunnel. Can, can you imagine the NFL, though? Right when you're coming out the tunnel, that's that's different. I mean, I played high school football, and like yeah. I thought that was the NFL. Yeah, I was like super hyped. I can only imagine what it's like. <laughs> Eighty thousand people. Yeah. Or like, have you seen like these videos of like college footballs back, like Penn State the other day? Like, can you imagine coming out of that tunnel? Yeah, a hundred thousand people. Yeah. It's crazy. hundred k watching, you're like all white out too. Yeah. The white out's good luck. Going, the, Virginia, oh, Virginia Tech the other day, and boom, boom, and you're just like. Yeah. That that's where emotions real. Clemson, huh. Alabama. Well, football, is a football is a sprint. That's all emotion. That's all. Yeah, that's all it is. I mean, it's it's six day build up, and then it's empty the tank. You got six days to fill that thing up. That's what that's what baseball is so challenging. Is you literally have to empty your tank every single day, and a lot of times it doesn't refill. One of the best quotes I ever got from my college coach was, "Just give me hundred percent what you got," Ever. and I've never lost sight of that. Like. Hey, damn, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 day, 50, 60, 80, hundred games in a row with, you know, a couple off days here and there that are usually travel days. Like, man, I'm grinding. I got about, I got a quarter tank, but I swear to God, I'll give you everything I got. Everything. It might, it might not be a lot, but I'm going to give you everything I got. That's a telltale sign. That to me. That. I love that. Of gamer grinder, whatever it is. Right. And this, this is the most. I think the most important message that I could pass to any young player, it's becoming way too easy to say, ah, I'm sore on this. Take, take a day. Like I I'm hearing stories about college guys in summer ball being like, Oh man, I can't play. I can't play, you know, four in a row. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like four. I don't blame, I don't blame. Uh, I mean, I don't know what the right word is. I felt like early in my career being a guy that was reliable that could go out there and play 162, 161, that could be available at time was going to reward me beyond my wildest imaginations. I learned that that's not necessarily true. I still, it's just still in me to want to be available every day. I think we were talking about this on the way home, why I decided to come back so soon after my injury, because it was so, in, it, I felt it wasn't necessarily for me, but it was so important for me to be available for my team. I wanted my manager to know that I'm available. My name's on the lineup card. Whether I'm in the lineup card or I'm on the extras, I want to know I'm there. And it was important for me to come back from that injury for that reason only. And I, it still, it still like frustrates me to my core when I'm watching the bottom ticker 
and there's teams that are in like playoff races and I see guy going on the DL for a tight neck or yeah. guy left the game because his neck was tight. Well, I've played with that for nine exactly. years. Like you just got to figure it out. Like I think some people are so concerned about, I think so, so many players are so concerned about being their, at their very physically best or mm-hmm. feeling like they can perform at their absolute best every t- single time, as opposed to, let me just figure out a way to help my team today or maybe I'll surprise myself and I don't feel good today, but maybe I can go out there and do something great. And that's another thing. I've always been in this mindset that shit, if I ain't playing, someone yeah, else is playing else and is. someone's going to take my job. Yeah, Wally Pipp, I thought about it. Yeah. The Wally Pipp, I thought about it. The two weeks I was on the DL, I said, shit, if someone gets hot, who knows yeah. if I'm ever going to play again. It's going to hey, be the end. Let's talk for a second. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this publicly. You played with a broken knuckle in 2015. Two, one or two. I played with a broken finger for a month that year, and you played with a broken knuckle. I had a broken hand. Broken, broken hand, fully broken hand. Uh, broke you, you, you went off the bat. Your whole, your whole right hand looked like it was was your it was your right hand, right? I broke a hand right here. That was the, the whole thing was gauzed up. It was crazy because you only had one good swing in that bat. So I mean, for six, it was about six weeks, five weeks, maybe like let's just call it five weeks. Six weeks sounds dramatic. Yeah. Five weeks. I didn't take I didn't take a single swing in the cage. Yeah. BP on deck. Nothing. I stood on deck. I timed the pitcher. I gave myself one good swing in that bat. First time I would swing would be in the box for yeah. five weeks. And then I think maybe five, six weeks into it, I remember I started feeling a little bit better. I think it was my first time going to Anaheim. So all my family and friends came and I hit BP for the first time. It was like six weeks later. It was the first time I, yeah, I, I hit on them. Do you remember when I slid into second in Tampa and I had my hand out? It was right after the lights went out. I slid into second. They threw the double lights play. Lights went out? Yeah, the lights went out. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got the double play hit up here. The and the throw? double play got throw got thrown off my finger my the top and now granted a broken hand's way worse like i was dealing with like that bone was broken but whatever so it wasn't that bad it was just like a i broke broke that bone i broke that bone last year when spring training got shut down and i was home we were getting ready for spring training 2.0 just built the cage in my backyard just got a machine i let my buddy being a great friend i'm like you hit up the machine first second pitch boom rocket right off the fingertip Oh, this was no. like this was like two or three weeks before we were going back, coming back here to Boston for. Oh, I didn't even know that. See, I had a lollipop finger. You know what's this one? But you know what's crazy is like. You know the best part is it hurts so bad, but I just got this machine. I said my, my right. turn to hit. I'm gonna hit anyway. <laughs> Let me get like five good swings that, real quick. That's the whole. They point. weren't good, but I got to hit. It's all like, right, right? Like it's the whole point. Like there's a a there's a difference between hurt and injured. If you're injured, it means you can't play. If you're like if you're injured, it means it's gonna get worse. It means it's. It's a mindset. It's a, but it's a, it's a microcosm of how you go about everything else too. And that's, I think, the thing that I appreciate about you the most. And, and it's everything you're talking about. No, like being available, right? Being available for your coach, being available for your team, being available for your teammates. The more guys you put on a team like that, the better, the, the bigger the likelihood of winning. And if you, if you put 25 guys like that together in a team, I don't care what analytics you got, I don't care what stats we need. We're going to win. We're going to figure out how a, to win. I had a teammate of mine. I'm not going to disclose what year. could be this year. could be five years ago. But he was coming back from, you know, a similar thing that you had, or I had like a, a finger injury. And I'll never forget, sitting in the dugout, just had his first at-bat. Dog shit at-bat, by the way. And struck out, come back to the dugout. And I'm just sitting there watching the game. And he's like, hey, what's up? He's like, man, it hurts so bad. I'm like, oh, okay. Next time I hit a double, never heard about it again. All right. Never heard about it again. Yeah, because, hey, it. hit a barrel. Barrels make everything go away, right? Bar- barrels, 
Well, I mean, I, I've also heard of, you know, someone I know was like, man, it hurts when I swing and miss. I said, don't fucking swing and miss. <laughs> Be better. You know what hurt too? When I had my, when yeah. I tore my thumb ligament, I was playing and when I swung and miss, it hurt too. So yeah. what I tried to do, not swing and miss. Yeah. Oh man. See, I'm right. a little more barrel accuracy. You're right. Yeah, exactly. That's why we invented Pelotero to teach people how to hit the ball in the barrel. God, I wish I would have had Pelotero moons ago. Probably wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. I'd be big league you guys. <laughs> my room, my hotel room would be twice, twice the, the size. size of he would he would own the Mets instead of working for them. That's funny. That's let's, go, uh, let's go a new topic. And it doesn't have to be specifically about these guys, but it was a situation that came up the other day. Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis Jr. got in a little uh, shouting match in the dugout. The I've heard some backstory from people that know people in the Padres dugout and it seemed like there were some other issues more than just the strikeout call, but Machado got in Tatis's face, yelling at him, it's not about you, let it go, can't get tossed from this game. Padres are also in the playoff race. Uh, is this a leadership example? Is this – Twitter seems very divided on this where it feels like everybody who played the game is like, yep, this happens, this is part of the game, veteran guy trying to get the younger guy on the, on the I right think page. the bigger issue, I think the bigger issue is the fact that it was seen in the dugout, which should be more of a safe space. It's not like we don't have the luxury of being like, Hey, I'm having an argument with you and let's go down the tunnel real quick and let's figure this out. Like talk about raw emotion and things that need to be said now. And in the heat of the moment, in the height of the season, when everything is yeah, magnified right. Um, he needed to do what he needed to do, and he needed to do it now. The fact that there was someone there with a camera phone and was able to film it, and I think since then people have kind of been able to dissect what was said. I think that's the bigger issue, but I don't think it's a big issue at all. I think the baseball think, part of it's not an issue at all. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, whether it was whether it was two rooks or two vets going out in the dugout, like the the thing people forget is. We see each other all the time. time. We've been we, we've been together for each other for you know eight nine months. We're with each other all the time. Uh, baseball is a very emotional game. I could be in the greatest stretch of my life, and he might be feeling like shit, and you know he might be in a, a emotional, and he might I might be doing something that's rubbing off on him wrong. Like you're just around someone so much. I mean, we all say we you you know you marry your best friend, your soulmate, the person, you know, you can't live without. And you have arguments with that person too, all the time. Like, and we don't necessarily always choose our teammates. Like we, we end up on teams and you have teammates and against, you know, popular belief, we don't like all of our teammates. Like you respect them and you might like all of them, but there's certain times you don't like all your teammates. Like you just have to deal with it. Like they're your teammates. That's who, you have to choose to be around and choose to, you know, be with all the time. But I think, you know, if I didn't look too much into it, I, I, my, my initial reaction was like I talked about, I'm upset that this is seen inside the dugout because I feel like there's not a lot of safe place, places athletes could go anymore to, to, no. to do these things. And it, it very, we had a scenario here in New York this year where we had two players. Raccoon, the rat, raccoon. Yeah. We had two players get into it over something that happened on the field. And a little bit of it was a lead up on the field, but you know, s smartly both of them went down underneath the tunnel, but 
we also have fans and a reporter access that kind of is adjacent to the dugout that's able to kind of see inside and see down below and hear and see things. And without actually really knowing what happened, speculation happens, then rumors start, and then you get in this whole divide. Was it right? Was it wrong? What was said? What wasn't said? And, you know, Lindor came out and made a joke about it because we were trying to defuse the situation, and then ultimately it became a bigger deal. But shit like that happens. Like, if if knowing Manny a little bit from being around him and not really knowing Tatis, but respecting the way that he plays and goes about his stuff, I think – both of them really do want to win. And I think Manny also understands that he was probably a lot like Tatis when he was younger. Yeah. And he also understands that Tatis is their best player. And I think openly he came out he and said, said that. It. Yeah, he said it out loud. And, and I think that's the best way you can yell at somebody is to is compliment him. <laughs> so you're the best yeah, player. Yeah, but I, I, just, I, think there, I think, once again, we're at a point of the season, not only is everything magnified, every win, loss, every little detail that happens throughout the game, you know, if this would have happened in, in, you know, April, they're like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, but or it probably doesn't even happen. He's probably like, hey, don't argue with Empire. Or it probably doesn't even say anything. But the fact that wins are so valuable right now and his presence in the lineup is so valuable and they're trying to achieve something that they want to achieve, that he had to do what he had to do. And I guarantee after the game, I'm sure they yeah. either talked about it or it was like nothing ever happened. I think – Manny needs to feel really good about what he did because it shows growth in him. I mean, he's still a young guy himself, but he's been in the league for a long time and obviously sees a lot of himself in Tatis. And I think Tatis knows that Manny's got his back. And I think he understands that Manny really cares about him and respects him and even respects him to the point where he said he was a better player than him. And those are, I mean, we're talking about alphas. We're yeah, talking about straight comparing alphas. Ferraris and Lamborghinis, yeah, you know. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. I, I I agree. I think I think to me for Manny that that's like a massive step because of like really if you if you look at the Padres in general right if I just looked at a thirty thousand foot view I would say where's leadership right like where's who's the leadership because I to Kevin's point like we know Manny the young guy like Manny came up when he was twenty like he was I was playing with him in Double A and then the next week he was in the big leagues and he never came back and I never really looked at him as the player that could take a leadership role and I think getting traded to the Dodgers when he did and, and going to the world series and kind of getting his shit pushed in really the way, I mean, he didn't look good in that, in that playoff in that world series. Um, I think it was a big step for him. And then obviously having to take on that role in San Diego. And I think it could lead to a lot of future success now, because if he's going to establish himself as that guy that everybody kind of can look to and, and do it in a way to your point, Bobby before was like, how do I do it in a way that, I make this guy understand how valuable he is. It's like knock somebody down to lift him up or lift him up to knock him down. It's that was really, I think he played it great. And honestly, I don't give a crap what Twitter thinks because I, like, well, as athlete, I think, I think to another point too, I think people don't, I don't think people realize how difficult of a thing that is to do too, you know, to be confrontational, to be a leader, to call out a teammate. Like I've had times here, even this year, as I've matured, and I've gotten older and I've been, I don't want to say push, but I've been shepherd to be a little bit more of a leader, to be a voice inside of our clubhouse. I've had to do some things that I'm not very comfortable doing. It's, it's not comfortable calling out a teammate, a friend, a peer, whether the player is better than you, worse than you, older than you, more service time, less service time. When you're, when you're asked to be a leader, 
you have to do some things that are very uncomfortable. And I know for damn sure what Manny did, he was not very comfortable doing, but it needed to be done. It needed to be said. It needed to be heard. It needed to be vocalized. Then you go about your business. I had a scenario this year. I had to do it to a teammate. I didn't like his behavior. It was, it wasn't an isolated incident. It was something that built up over time, over time, over time, over time. And from the moment I got here, they said, Hey, you may have to do this with a certain player here. And I said, okay, like I'm new here. Let me, let me be a observer before yeah. I'm very reactionary. And it just got to a point. And I was also, I don't think I would have done it, but I was also triggered in the moment because I think I was dealing with my own kind of failures at the time too. So I was already kind of triggered to do it. And then I watched him do it for like the 10,000th time for this year when I was kind of going through it for the first yeah. time. And I said, fuck it. Now's the time. And you do it and you feel like you got 10,000 eyes on you and you're like, shit, did I make the right decision? Is, is that going to be perceived right by him? Is that going to be perceived right from my coaching staff? Is that going to be perceived right from my, uh, you know, teammates? Yeah, everyone and what I've office. had to learn about becoming a leader and being asked to be a leader is none of that shit should matter. If you feel like it's right and you feel like being a leader sometimes lonely. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what I've learned from, you know, studying and admiring Kobe and the Jordans of the world. You're not always going to be, a lot of times you're not going to be the most, you know, popular guy on your team, but, your guys are going to want to go to war with you. I think guys are going to respect you. Not to say that my teammates don't want to be around me or I don't have friends on this team, but sometimes being a leader is, is lonely. Sometimes you have to say the things that people need to hear that they don't want to hear. Sometimes you have to say things that need to be said that no one's saying. And it, it's definitely a challenge. So I, I give Manny all the props in the world. Um, I wish it was something that wasn't so public. But the fact that it is public, I think he deserves a lot of credit. And hopefully, like you said, I mean, if you're reading the stuff, hopefully he's receiving a lot more praise than he is criticism for what he was able to do. Well, that's part of the problem with society now is like everybody thinks they're entitled to an opinion, right, wrong, or different. And I think more so than when we were growing up, the world, we can we can create this false divide and as and difference of right and wrong. And, and, and at the end of the day, like, there, this is really an area of gray, right? Like, and from our perspective as athletes, like looking at it and thinking about the role that he has to take on that team, hundred percent respect it, love it, appreciate it. And he's doing more good for that player. And it's, it's almost the same situation as what happened last year when he swings at the 3-0 pitch, right. Or, and hits the grand slam and in the situation, it's, he's a young kid that's doing young kid things. He's obviously young and talented and it's going to get attention, right? Because if you're the best player, you're going to get attention. So, it's necessary to have those moments with young players to make sure that they just kind of stay the course and, and don't get too far off the path. If you don't get, if, if somebody doesn't put you back on the path, who knows where you might end You know what I mean? And I, you, you've experienced stuff like that as a player too, Bobby, like you've seen it, you know, you were a captain in college. You had the, you saw players have it happen to them. It's just that now it's the big leagues and it's in front of everybody in the world. You know? Yeah. I don't, I don't understand why. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like this defense mechanism we have. I don't think, I think we're so worried about what other people are going to think about us or how they're going to feel about us, but I don't understand why it's so difficult to one, tell someone that needs tell someone something that needs to be said, be confrontational. Um, I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. I don't understand it. I don't, well, I don't know if it's just it's the world. Man. It's the world. It's a defense mechanism. It's probably a, a similar something inside of us that's why people fear public speaking yeah it's the same thing you fear talking in front of your peers like 
you hang out with these people for nine months a year. I have, I have my own individual relationships with every single person on this team, every single coach on this team, some better than others. But when I'm asked to, you know, we have every team has their thing. And after a game, you know, if you're the player of the game, you're deemed the player of the game, you give a little, you say a little something after the game and, you know, you could tell there's certain people that are comfortable doing it. There's certain people that have no business wanting to do it. There's yeah. some people that are terrified of doing it. But at the, end of the day, at the end of the day, like we're with each other all the time. We know, I don't want to say everything about each other, but we know a lot about each other. Yeah. We have relationships with everyone in this room. Why is it so difficult to do that? I think generally we all want to be liked, right? As a general rule of thumb, most people want to be liked. Nobody wants to be disliked anyway. So a lot of people don't maybe care. They don't care about what people think about them. Like I never wanted to be a guy that was disliked at the clubhouse early in my career. And then as I got older, I started saying, you're you I don't think you set out to be disliked, yeah, but yeah. I think you want to be authentic. But you're again, right? So like my perception was to be, to be non-confrontational. Right. Like the way you're like, I always just think to be like, you have to be non-confrontational. And then it's like you're playing both sides of it. Right. Like you're trying to be somewhere in the middle. And, and there are certain things where obviously you don't have to have an opinion. But again, going, you hit the nail on the head, being authentic to me. If I'm if I'm true to myself. Right. And the things that I believe morally, whatever, based on whatever disciplines you follow, things you think about, whether you're religious, not if you're true to yourself and you know wholeheartedly that something's right versus wrong and you're convicted and you let somebody know that what they're doing is stupid, like people can do nothing but respect you. Right. And, and that's something that I, I think I started learning as I was older in Minnesota. I was always worried about what my teammates were thinking at first. I was always, and, and we didn't have the best environment for rookies to come up because they almost like made it feel uncomfortable and we weren't very good either, which didn't help. So I don't know. It's like being a freshman. When you're the freshman on the team, you get the older seniors that kind of know the ropes and you don't want to, you want to be on their good graces for sure. You don't want to be disrespected or you don't want to not have their respect. I think it, it boils over. I think with this, this particular situation, there's a lot of expectations that aren't being met in San Diego. They, they had the playoff wildcard lead. Now they're not in the lead. So there's a lot of, a lot of boiling over in that situation. That's not a one moment situation that that's a boil over that, I agree that Machado had to step up and say something or he felt passionate enough about the situation that he, he decided to make that move when he did, because they got to win that ball game. They, they're, they're in, they got to win now and losing him hurts the team. So he's he, looking out for the team. No, he stayed in. He went out and played short. He didn't yeah, get he ended up losing though. He was, he was going off in the pitch. It like the umpire, like whatever is it's, it's the manager got tossed earlier, and the strike yeah. zone was universally bad that Either. game. Oh, and I get it, right? Like you're again, you're caught in the emotion of the moment, but I don't know. You got to again. This is a spot where you have to like kind of feel it out because if you leave the game, then what happens if we go to extra innings? And that's why I think Manning wanted to make sure he stayed. Yep. Anyway, uh, next topic. We got two more topics here. Two more. This is going to be a two-part show. You may turn this into a two-part show. Exactly. That's take advantage of the opportunity here. Uh -huh. This one is uh, it's about Bobby Dalbeck, but it's not about Bobby Dalbeck. So, because oh, you know my relationship with Bobby Dalbeck, I don't know anything about your relationship. Oh, okay. So I'm anxious to learn that. So, you know, Heart, me and Heartthrob Bob are boys. Okay. Well, AKA also known as Heartthrob Bob. Yeah. I did not know that. So I'm not. I'm not New England anymore. I don't know the nicknames. So, July 29th, Red Sox traded for Schwarber. July 30th onward, Bobby D. Heartthrob Bob is second in OPS in, in all of Major League Baseball. 
hitting 310, 1,135 OPS. He's got 13 homers, 36 RBIs. He's been on fire. So maybe you have some some extra insight into this. Yes. When when a team uh, brings in somebody, Schwarber was a little unique because he was injured when they got him. Is that just lighting a fire under you? Is it giving you perspective and kind of making you just kind of focus on the, the situation at hand? What do, what's your take on it? And do you guys have, I know Kevin. Well, I mean, I think I, I give, I know Bobby well. I spent a lot of time with him, you know, last year and getting to know him in summer camp last year, spring training last year, kind of formed a relationship over the fact that actually how we formed a relationship is we lived in the same area in spring training and I only had one car and I want to leave the car for my wife. So I didn't really know Bobby, but I knew he lived a couple doors down. So I said, hey, Bobby, can I get a ride in the morning? And then it became an everyday thing. So I started riding into him. Then we made a relationship because he lives in Arizona. I live in Arizona. We like the same music. We like a lot of the same things. Fast forward, I spent a lot of time with Bobby this offseason, hitting in my cage in my house, hitting at cages with him. Very talented guy. Also a very young guy. Got a little bit of a taste of the big he league did. last year. He's big. You know, big guy, big, strong kid. got a lot of power. He's, he's got legitimate, legitimate power. Like is, is Reminds me of Trumbo a little bit. In his he, swing and his it's a great, great, great comp. He's got, he's got, tr- he's got Trumbo, Trumbo power. Where did like, he come up with that? That was just the, I mean, it's just everything. His body type, his body size, type, uh, a little bit more, I think, I think he's got, I think he's got a more, I think he's got more of a today's swing than Trumbo. Yeah, yeah. I think Trumbo you, that's yeah. not, get, not get off topic, yeah. but yes, like one of those guys that's got legitimate, you know, power where you're like, Hey, this is a slam dunk 30, 40 home run guy a year. Big leagues is hard. He got a little bit of taste of it last year. And I take last year for a grain of salt. Last year is a COVID year. Like, yes, he, he probably felt the emotions of getting to the big leagues and finally getting there. And I don't care if you're playing in Fenway with no fans or you're playing your game, uh, a major league baseball game in Dunedin, Florida. Like if, if you get called up to the major leagues for the first time, you have, a whirlwind of emotions. You're, you're, you feel like you finally made it. You worried about succeeding. You want to prove everyone that you belong here. Fast forward. He gets a chance to be the opening day first baseman for the Boston Red Sox. First full time, first time up in the big leagues, making the opening day roster, playing in front of fans, having the expectations, uh, playing in Boston, playing in front of these fans. I don't really know what kind of start he got off to. I, I followed him and we, we talked back and forth. He was, he was doing, he was, he, yeah, he he wasn't doing well. He wasn't doing well. Was he doing? Was he was he not performing because lack of preparation, or because of the first times, or just because baseball is really difficult? But to your point, getting a guy like Schwarber may light the fire under your ass a little bit quicker. Maybe it's an odd coincidence. Maybe he started to realize like, shit, I got to perform, or this guy's gonna play, or yeah, I'll get sent I down, yeah. or maybe. Maybe the first couple of months of the season was this build up to something that was maybe he was building the foundation of him about to be successful, him putting in the works, him going through the struggles, him having a little bit of success, then not having success, learning how to be a big leaguer, learning how to adjust to major league pitching, playing every single day. Who knows? There's I don't know. I don't know the answer. There's no really no answer to it. I mean, I could I could call him and ask him. Yeah. I'll ask him tomorrow and I'll get back to you. So, but I, both could be true. But I definitely think, you know, I, 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 without not just talking about that situation, but we talk about that situation in general. Like, if there was a point in my career and at any point in my career, that's dating back to Toronto where, you know, I was 
playing pretty well, but I wasn't a perennial all-star. If they would have like pick up the phone and next thing you know, Lorenzo Cain's, you know, on our team is like, Hey, shit, figure it out. Or, yeah. you know, you ain't going to play anymore or it, Mike Trout or something like, you're yeah. like, Oh shit, I better figure it out. It's but, a look over your shoulder thing, man. Like he, but I mean, while, to his credit though, yeah, like he turned it on to his credit, yeah, like sure. either some people look over the shoulder and they continue to look over their shoulder and then they lose track of what's in front of him. Or he realizes like, Oh shit, maybe that was a little nudge in the back or, you know, pretty I, impressive. dude. It's, I mean, regardless, it's regardless of, what happened or why it happened, it's it's been very impressive to watch. And as a friend of his and as a former teammate and someone that I care about, I love seeing all the success he's had. And I feel like a day from now, I will give you the answer. I'm actually ask- very curious. I'm very curious because I feel like this is, this is my prediction, I guess. So he had a little bit of success last year, hit a bunch of homers. Batting average was had a great spring training. I think he had like 12, 13, 14 homers in spring. Yeah. yeah so, I talked to him a bunch during spring. Yeah. And then and he I, set the bar super high. Thought it was going to be easy. Well, no, I think so. My prediction is that I think the league made an adjustment to him and it took him a few months this year to figure it out and, and kind of recalibrate himself and understand how the league was trying to get him out this year. And he's made adjustments. We may or may not have an inside source that we all know here. And like I've talked to him a lot about it. It's obvious. Like when I talk to my friends who are in the game, I talk about, guys that are in the game and I, I try not to divulge too much but I think I think there was a lot there's a lot of trying almost trying to mask your insecurities right when you're young when you're a young player you're trying to be like oh no I'm right there I'm just missing or, or whatever it's like no nah, you ain't just missing dog like be honest with yourself and like you have to have that 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 oh crap oh shit moment where you go okay I'm gonna be honest with myself and now I gotta I gotta do something different and to the, to the organization's credit be it for lack of having a better alternative at the time, they stuck with them and it's going to turn into, you're going to look at this year at the end of the year and you're going to go, man, like he, he's going to OPS 850 if he just finishes strong. Like, and you couldn't have really asked more than 27 and 85 from that kid this year, whatever it is. It could be 30 and, and 90. Like, and you know, but if you look at the first two months, you, you were, you were ready to give up hope. Most of Boston was, I think it's as typical Red Sox fans, but you were a Red Sox. I was a short-lived, yeah. short-lived. I was so happy. I think they're going to Red Sox. I think they're going to give me a standing O tomorrow. I can't wait. When I'm in the duck. <laughs> It'll be your first get tribute? ovation at at that uh, the old Fenway Park. Guys, Guys remember me? No, never yeah. heard of you. No, we never. Kevin Millar? No, no, Pilar. It's me. <laughs> I was here. I played here last I, year. I want you to get in the box. I want you to get in the box and just turn around and give the give no matter what. Okay. I'll do it. I'm going to be at the game. I'm going to the game. This is my you, first. You got to uh, get the whole crowd. You got to get the whole crowd. I'm to go going to the game. game. This is my yeah, first. You got to get. You got to get everybody like getting them hyped up. So I'm going to force them. To force them to, to tip the cap. That'd be mm-hmm. awesome. Last topic. Let's uh, last go. topic. We got a, a mailbag here. Mailbag. A little reminiscent for you guys. So Jamie from Quebec, Canada, asks, or he says, "I love your podcast. Enjoyed your work for many, many years." Remember sitting down with Bobby's ebook a few years back. It blew my mind. Blah blah blah. Uh, right, get, 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 over, get, get, over, get over the point of yourself. We are approaching the sixth Great anniversary book. of Game Four of the ALDS, and CC's amazing homer. This guy's a Blue Jays fan. You hit one too. We both hit one. Game Four. DS. It was it was Canadian Thanksgiving, and my in laws, not baseball fans, actually allowed us to sit around the television, watch the game, and eat Thanksgiving. It was quite the moment for the whole family. Pretty cool. Uh, favorite memories from the game. Uh, he's asking, what do you guys think of Gibby's? Oh, yeah, Cece, but he, he didn't know Kevin was going to be on. What do you guys think of Gibby as a manager? And then, Chris, specifically for you, uh, you played for Rich Gedman, 
who are your favorite coach coaches growing up and why? Rich oh. Gedman, for sure. That's the answer to the first game question. Four? Game year? four was what the year. 2015 when we when you hit the Hummer and Price caught it. Remember when we got we got it back to Toronto. That was that game? Yeah, that was the division series. All right. So favorite coaches, Rich Gedman, Rich Piergastavo. I'm gonna throw Charlie Stan in there. Rich Piergastavo was my Legion coach. He could coach in the big leagues right now if you just put him out there. He knows a ton about the game. Taught me a lot about the game. Dad obviously gets thrown in there. So that's growing up basically because I played independent ball until I was 27. Did you get a Gibby imitation? What? You you have a Gibby impersonation. Oh, you want to hear my Gibby? This so this was Gibby. You 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 never got the distinct pleasure of hearing Gibby at the mound. So Gibby comes out of the mound to take Dicky out. You remember this because we had Price getting hot the whole game. Yeah, this was the this was game four. We were basically getting Price hot, yeah. and he was going to pitch in relief that day, so there would be no question that the Stro Show would pitch the next day, right? So first of all. Uh, Donaldson homers and I got to deal with the oppo thing remember and then I yelled nobody goes oppo like me when I hit mine you don't remember this you blacked out you've played no, too much no, in the big no race. no no I feel like you're I feel like the homers happened so but I feel like the nobody I feel like nobody goes oppo like me was it started game, in BP. I thought this was game two in Texas the next year no. of Hamels not Hamels we faced Darvish and then someone you both had oppo homers that game yeah that that's but we were also like so okay, whatever. Game four. Okay, just give me your Donaldson's me. taking BP and he yeah. goes, I'm having to hit his group because Bats and Eddie didn't hit. So Donaldson's like, huh, nobody goes up like me. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm standing right there. He's like, Well, you hit him like down the line. And I'm like, What are you talking about? And then I proceeded to hit the next five balls in the right center field seats. So then he hits one to start the game. And I'm like, geez, Revy bunted for a hit. Donaldson hit a bomb. Then I I hit mine and I was like, Nobody goes up all like me because and because and then Gibby the cameras picked it up too when you yelled it. It was on. The so anyway, my favorite moments from that game that was cool. Then my guy over here goes deep. Price catches it in the bullpen, and then you used to do the thing with Price. I have it on my mantle. Yeah. You have that on your mantle. Price is going like this Actually, from the dugout from the in, bullpen. In full disclosure, it's not on my mantle. It's in a storage box somewhere. Well, you've had to move a lot. Yeah, move. Kevin, it. you care to share the insight behind the the handle? No, no not even a little bit. <laughs> Um, so anyway, <laughs> Kevin Palmer stands out. Um, and then this is the moment that stands out to me the most from this that the game. Gibby impression? Yeah, Gibby, Gibby comes out to the mound. It's, Dickie's gone four and two thirds, first of all. So we're not even going to let him get the win. Yeah. And we were like seven nothing. Yeah. And I don't know if he was trying to get Price to win or whatever. So he comes out of the mound. And you know how Gibby is. Yeah. Right. Like it sounded like the guy from the Waterboy. So Gibby comes to get the ball. Donaldson has his hat on, and for, this is for the, the video. I hope he sees this because Donaldson had his hat, like, kind of sitting like this at the mountain, and he's got his arms crossed. And Gibby comes up to R.A. and goes, ah, blah, 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 blah. he gets the ball, and I shout out. Donaldson's standing there, arms crossed, and all of a sudden, with a few choice words, he goes, look, are we doing? <laughs> like, and Gibby's like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And, and Donaldson's like, we're up freaking eight to nothing. Whatever it is, he's screaming at him. And Gibby now, like, gets human again. Like, you can hear his voice. And he was like, well, I mean, hey, this guy hit a ball hard against him. You know, I want to bring Price in. So, and then Don said, why aren't we saving him for tomorrow? Why wouldn't we want to have both? And me and Gogo just turned around. I was like, dude, I can't be in the middle of an argument on the mound during this game. But it all worked out. It all worked out. It all worked out. So, you know, Moral story. That's the Mad two. scientist. Yeah. The John two, Gibbons. Yeah, the two things. Yeah. Now, oh, you knocked me in with a hit, too. You're next to bat. <laughs> You don't remember anything. No, I do, but I feel like I feel like um, I feel like those two years, the playoffs, kind of all blur together. 
Except like, I had to watch the second years. Oh. Except I know like game five, obviously very isolated thing, but like it was the fact that we played Texas. We played Texas the next year. I feel like, oh, it all blended together. Oh, except kind of, I wasn't there. The next year. Blended. Uh, Kevin, can I ask you a, a question for Jamie here? Yeah. Uh, favorite, favorite Toronto memory or takeaway from playing your time there? Ooh. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's a, there's a lot, a lot of things. Um, Seems like guys really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a uh, surface level Toronto, the city of Toronto is beautiful. Uh, there was so much to do. The, the, the city treated us so well as far as memories. I mean, game five, obviously, you know, it, it's going to go down as one of the most iconic games in the history of baseball. Uh the celebration that night going out in the city of Toronto. Um, I think about those Thursday night off days when we used to go to the outdoor uh, venue, go see concerts and, you know, see some of my favorite musicians from, you know, this close and enjoying beautiful weather there in Toronto. And just like, I don't know, it was, it was, it was at a time before it was at a time before I had my, before I had Kobe, my first, my daughter, my first kid, I was only there that short portion before I got traded. So like, it was just a good time to like, I just have a lot of like memories of, you know, pre kids and me and my wife and just being free and like literally feeling like you had the entire world in front of you awesome. and, and, and you had the keys to it. And like Toronto just opened up so much to us and gave us so much. And there was so much to do and going out to nice restaurants and going to rooftop patios and going to these concerts and just like, feeling like you were in such a magical place and it was people were so kind and so respectful and so and people appreciated what you did on the field and people appreciated what you did off the field and it was just it was just such a great place to go and I mean I'm I'm always I feel like no matter how my career ends or where it ends you know unless I go on and win a world series somewhere I feel like in my heart of hearts I'm always going to be a blue jay and always be you know part of that culture and part of that country and it's always gonna have a special place in my heart and i hope one day here in the near future when life gets back to normal and things get back to normal that i can take my family up there and and enjoy a lot of same things that me and amanda used to enjoy before we had kids i did toronto radio the other day and like three different shows i don't know because i put up a tweet saying the blue jays are a problem i don't know if you saw it got like 1700 likes it was stupid i I'm not, they, I are, they are a problem so I get a serious, serious, serious problem. Do I think they have, do I think they have the pitching right now to not to win win a five game or seven game series to be determined, but the team they're playing better have really good pitching because they're going to score. They're going to score some runs. I mean, I'm a believer in Robbie. I'm a believer in Manoa on any given day can be lights out. Barrios can be lights out. Ryu is going to be out, but the thing is, they don't even have to be lights out. That they're going to score runs. Close. They're going to score runs. Yeah. God, they can they can hit and they can and they're athletic. I said so. The, the this whole thing, right? They're a good team. They're just a good team. I don't know if they're quite at the place where they need to be to win the whole thing. Whatever. That's but fine. that's the beautiful thing. You get in the dance, you just never know. Exactly. You got to get there. But my favorite thing about the city and you. you like they they embraced us, man. Like we were we they were our that we were their people. They were our people. Like how many times did you get a meal paid for? Like I remember one specific night, you and I were out to dinner. People would just pay our bills, and it felt awkward sometimes because like 
you're like, I don't want to be indebted to anyone, but thank you. Like we were, but they, they were just, people were thankful. Yeah. I think it was a combination of obviously them being song. very, I think them being very kind, but I think it was perfect. Song. You know, you think about, you think about what, what can I, what can I do for this person? That's going to be memorable or that do something that, you know, they can't do for themselves. And a lot of people just found that it was like a way of, you know, paying their respects and being like, Hey, we want, you know, I know you can afford it, but like, I don't know what to get you. I don't know what to say, but like, this is us just saying thank you. And you know what happened? It, goosebumps. it, it happened. Yeah. I, I think about it too. And it's been, it's been a couple years now since no more than a couple years. It's been five, five, it's literally five years. Well, you played there 17. No, I'm saying, no, I'm not saying just being there. I'm, I'm, I, I'm talking about, I think, I think before anything happened, I think people would have respected us. And I think people would have probably been the same, but I also think my first year there, your first year there, we were part of something. We were part of a team that won yeah. and a team that got very close and they had been waiting for that for so long that, you know, we kind of broke down. We, we kind of, you know, broke a, a streak of them not being yeah, in the playoffs and being years. a very good team for a while. So I think people respected that. Yeah. The point I was making is it's been a long time since I've been somewhere where we were on the cusp of, you know, getting back to the postseason or winning a division yeah, or, true. and there's just something about it. You know, obviously Toronto's a very special place. I, I can't speak of anywhere else I've been, but I imagine, I mean, I got, I was in Boston last year with those guys and those guys feel the same way about this place. I'm in Boston, this place, Boston, as we feel about Toronto, because they were part of something even greater than we were. They won a world series, yep. but they were part of, you know, winning. And I, it just, it's such an important thing that people have to understand that at this level of professional sports, that's the only thing that matters. You want to be remembered when you want to be embraced when, and it. I think that's where our current season with the Mets is kind of, been a roller coaster of emotions because we had all this expectation with the signings and the things we had done in the off season. And then right out of the gate, we had 10, 15 yeah. guys hurt and we had a bunch of guys kind of step up and win and we were exceeding expectations and we were being embraced and we could do no wrong, you know, but no one really expected anything out of us. We were playing with 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th outfielders on our roster that, people never thought would, would get here in a million years, but we were figuring out ways to win games. And I think I can speak on it openly. And honestly, I think a lot of us, I don't want to say got complacent, but we were winning for so long. And I don't know, every, when everything kind of came back, I think we took for granted, you know, how, how special and how important winning is and you lose one game and then it's another game and it's another game. And then you're like, Oh shit, are we ever going to win again? And then the snowball effect happens. And then we got ourselves back in contention. Then we played bad baseball. Then we had some things happen and it's us versus them or them versus us. And like this whole thing got kind of blown out of proportion and was crazy. And the answer is just win. Just win. They just want us to win. We want to win. And it makes you all you're talking about makes you realize how really long, how truly long the season is because it feels like, from like a public perspective, it's like yeah, I I feel like I feel like um, I feel like my injury this year was two three years ago. Like it's like crazy, I forget man. that I, I'm 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 four months removed from you know, shattered shattered face and you look pretty good for a guy who yeah, not shattered. I'm getting it fixed. I'm getting it fixed one more time, but. Yeah, four months ago. Like you, you like it's a long time ago. Like 
we were just in DC not too long ago. And I was like, God, do you remember when we were here to open the season? We were here for 10 days because the season got like the team had COVID. Yeah, and you're COVID like, that was here. this year? You're like, that wasn't last year because COVID was last year, but it's also this year. And you're like, dude, that was so long ago. I can't like April. And now we're sitting here. And what is it? September 21st, 20th? I'm just saying. And you're, I'm like, shit, dude. I'm if we don't, thankful we don't, back in the beans if so we don't, hang out with If you. we don't get this together, I'm going to be home in 13 days. And you're like, where did the year go? That's what the craziest thing about the baseball world is. is It's so friggin' long. And then you get to this point and you're like, damn, that went by so fast. But that happened so long ago. But if yeah. we don't win, we're going to be home. Yeah. And you're like, damn, I'm going to miss it. Yeah. I have yeah. one other question. And it, yeah. just, it just popped in my head. Uh, DeGrom, what's it like witnessing him pitching? It's, it's, when he's, um, when he's at, when I'm going to, I'm going to bring this, this I'm great. I'm, 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 I'm glad you asked me this question. Cause this is going to bring this full circle back to a very a thing we talked about like four hours ago. How much do I get paid for this, by the way? What was, what was the rate? Uh, what gonna, was the rate per hour we negotiated? Is, uh, it's a five cent <laughs> deposit in Massachusetts. Um, watching DeGrom pitch is probably the most special thing I've ever seen in baseball. And I played with, we played with a league MVP. We played with some really, really good players. David Price was there. Strong was there. Early yeah. was there. I mean, well, I'm talking about, I mean, we, we I witnessed, we were, we, we in some small way yeah. were a part of, him winning an MVP, like yeah. you scored runs for right. him, you drove him in. Like we we watched the greatest player in, in the league. American yeah. League yeah. that given year go out there and perform. And the expectations for him every time he stepped up was like he's gonna get it done. And more times than not, he did. But Jacob DeGrom is, in my opinion, the greatest pitcher of my generation that and maybe of all time. I, I think, I think. It may be proven over time if he if he gets back and be and healthy. Maybe he's, maybe he won't go down as the greatest pitcher of all time. I think he will go down as the most dominant stretch of pitching over the course of his time because I don't think he'll. He obviously got a little bit later start in his career, but I think his window of ten to twelve years that he's going to put together will be the most dominant of all time. What he's makes he's, what like, make, he's like Pedro what? Prime, Randy Johnson Prime, Verlander Prime. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. I think, I think what makes, I think what makes it so, I think it, what makes it so special to watch every time is, every time he steps on the mound, you're like, he can't be that dominant again today. He he he's got to be human. He's going to give up some runs. He's he's not going to strike everyone out. Guys are going to figure him out. It just doesn't happen, you know. I've become very good friends with Jake. And I've got a very good relationship with him and we share, we are locker mates. And recently he got a couple briefcases delivered to his, uh, his locker. We're like, what the hell are these? So he opens them up and it's American league pitcher of April, American league pitcher of May. And I like to fuck around with Jake. And I'm like, let me look at your numbers. Right. Like it, it couldn't have been that good. Right. You fucking, yeah. And you, you haven't even pitched this year, dude. I mean, pitch. <laughs> Like we all just get like you sitting on your numbers, you know, the typical stuff. We're like, and you look it up and you're like, like Jake, look, this shit wasn't that good. You were 0 2 in April with a 0.47 ERA and like 75 strikeouts. I don't know how he loses game. Like he loses. Well, well that's what that's like we always joke around to. And I'm like, dude, you were 0 2 because you gave up one unearned run, one you gave up a solo but homer. That's a crazy and shit. we lost, we lost one to, the his second game of the year, 
against Miami. He went eight innings, gave up one run, struck out 16 or 14, and he lost. Yeah. We didn't score any runs that game, so he was 0-1 there. And there was another game, like, he gave up, like, two unearned runs, and we maybe scored run run. He was 0-2 yeah, at a point four seven. Runs. I right? forgot about unearned runs. But it's just – he's just – Would you say so, – What I want to bring back full circle is we always talk about, like we, – we talked about earlier, like, when you're facing these elite pitchers, you're, like, so overly concerned about, like, the name on the back of the jersey. The one the, – I've only faced Jake one time. He started one game. I had three at-bats off of him. I obviously knew who Jacob DeGrom was, but I was. this was the year I got traded from Toronto, San Francisco. So I wasn't, like, that familiar with him. I obviously knew who Jake was. I've seen him on TV and stuff. I know he, he probably had a Cy Young at that point, but he wasn't, like, he wasn't, like, a guy that I focused a lot of time and energy on because I knew the chances of face, facing him weren't very high. I was more concerned about, you know, the guys in the American League East. So long story short, I, I, it's on my phone. I send it to him every four or five days, maybe like every 10 days. I send him my double, I hit off of him, but there's no freaking way in hell. I would ever got to hit off this guy. If I was his teammate, if I had to face him like next year or two years or three years from now, there's no fucking chance I'd ever hit this guy because I've witnessed it. I've seen him. Like I've seen him up close, but like the fact that I was still a little bit naive, yeah, to, was human. Yeah. yeah. The, the fact yeah. that I like was naive to like him and like what he had accomplished. I'm like, Oh, Cy Young winner. I've, I've faced, sure, I faced, Scherzer yeah, and Scherzer's in the books. I faced Price. Like I faced these guys before. I'm like, but now that I've seen it day in and day out, awesome. I've been in the dugout. I've been in the outfield and watched him do it. This is that awesome. is the one name. Like if I have to face story. him, I will be. I like. There's no shot in hell. But that's why I keep that hit on my phone and I send it to him. Like I'll send it to him right now, and he'll probably say, he'll, his answer will be like, I wasn't very good at 19, and I'll look it up, and it's like, oh yeah, you had a 197 ERA. <laughs> You were, you were a little you were a little you were a little closer to two that year, bud. One nine seven yeah. in a generation where yeah. like nobody has sub three. Yeah, you. It's crazy. It's crazy how good he is. I was just at like, how hard do you think that ball was hit? I'm like 150. <laughs> do you think he like? Do you think he's the best at matching stuff and pitching ever? Like and like in today, like because there's a lot of guys that can throw. What do you mean in terms of matching? Like I think the way I describe him when people like I'm like he he is a pitcher who has ridiculous stuff. Like you know what I mean? He's and not Jake, just a, Jake. Yeah. Jake has, first of all, ridiculous God-given ability and ridiculous a ridiculous arm. Jake also has the most unbelievably pure mechanics you've ever seen. Those were not those were not God-given. Those were taught. Those were developed. Those were something he still works on, and he still, you know, he hasn't been throwing like he he's trying to get himself back, but like he is very aware of you know, what his body needs to do in yeah. space. And he's taught Stroman a lot. And Stroman's a very aware guy, but like Stroman has learned a lot from being around Jake. And he talks about how he wants to feel his, his spike come up like his calf and he wants to feel like this. And I think what makes him so good aside from his gifts and the ability to throw so hard is he repeats his mechanics better than anyone in the game. So like if the more you repeat something, he's going to be able to execute more pitches over the course of, a game if he's throwing 100 pitches he's probably gonna execute 90 of them and the 10 he misses yeah. is shit so good anyway that guys don't hit it anyway so he's he's, he's a pitcher who has stuff that's yeah good. jake 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 i mean there's there's probably guys out there that are probably better pitchers because they don't have as good stuff and they know how to like yeah, manipulate and use all the quadrants of the zone you know but but jake 
Jake is just so dominant. Like, you know, he throws three pitches and once in a while he'll throw out a curveball just because he fucking wants to. It's the 78th pitch of the game. He hasn't thrown one. He's like, this sounds like fun. I'm going to punch you out with this. It'll be the only one I throw. And I haven't thrown it in four bullpens, but no, yeah, shake, shake, no. shake, 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 curveball. Okay, we'll see how this goes. Punchy. Just because it's, it's fun. Just because it's fun. Literally my favorite story. Just because he's just because he's fun. I Dude. saw him pitch in the All-Star game in 2015. And I was up in the third deck, left of the third baseline, and hit the angle he creates, it's um he was on like a he's it's it was just different. Everything he he just like catapults down the mound and it's so explosive. It was I mean, you're in the world like you understand all-star game, it's all the best pitchers. His, his stuff was so explosive, it didn't even make sense. What makes Jake so unique is he throws he throws from such a low arm slot that he can he can create vertical ride and what's the opposite of vert? Like Heart, but not horizontal, vertical. but like vertical. He can, ride, he, can ride, he can ride it up or he yeah. can cut it down. Yeah. yeah. He can create like the most elite ride when he wants to go up in the zone and he can create so much angle down that a hitter is now having to cov- cover such a big. Yeah. I'm just glad How far above the ball you have, to, you have to swing against him? I'll send you the video. You can check it out. Shit was right on plane. The one I got. <laughs> hey, when we, but the- here's the funny thing. I talk about how like, Hey, there's no shot in hell, but I like to talk shit to him because we yeah. become very good friends. So I'm like, Hey, if I'm back next year in spring training, like I'm going to take you deep. And all he talks about, cause you know, it's not a secret. He really only throws to one side of the plate. Like he doesn't have to throw to the other side of the plate. And I'm like, I'm just going to dive out there. I'm going to fucking click your stuff, put it in left field seats. And he talks about hitting me. And I'm like, I really hope I don't have to face him in spring. Like one, I hope we're teammates again next year, yeah. but I'm like, shit, if I actually have to line up back there, like I'm going to be so scared. And it's not, it's all going to work out. And it's not, it's not scary in the sense that like, he's not going to hit me. It's just, his stuff is so good. And like, he's probably going to punch me out, but it's like, I just, I don't want to hear him. Ball track, to ball I don't want to have to talk shit for like, built it up. I don't want to have to talk shit for like six, seven months. I get a game every day. No, it's easier. Ball, ball tracking day. You can, t- you are winning the relationship right now. You know that, right? Like you're winning the relationship. Like, cause my one for three yeah, or the double. One for three or the double. You're winning the relationship. Yeah. So like your shit. You want to hear, you want to hear some other, you want to hear some, you want to hear another great Jacob DeGrom? I guess it's not a story. This is just this is just Jake in a nutshell. Jake Jake loves pitching. Jake doesn't like the four days in between pitching a whole lot, but he really loves competing and loves pitching. But Jake is like such a chill, down-to-earth guy that Jake – like, hey, Jake, what do you do with your Cy Youngs? And he shows me a picture, and it's similar to, like, your car, how it's kind of a mess, but this is his hunting truck, and it's like – he's got, like, bottles and stuff on his passenger seat, yeah. and then – you kind of move the stuff out. You see a Cy Young sitting in his hunting truck. In the car. That's just one of his many, but it's just, he's got his hun- Cy Young sitting and in yes, his hunting my truck. my car is currently a mess. I just, I, I, I think, I think me, I think the baseball world, I think, I think we got robbed of witnessing something that was going to be historic this year, because I think watching him this year, talking to guys like Stroman that had been with him, you know, last year, talking to our pitching coach, um, knowing Jake and talking to Jake, he truly believes that he was the best version of himself this year, which is hard to imagine because he has two Cy Youngs. He had a one set seven, eight ERA one year. And he, he truly believed that this was going to be his best year. Wow. And I think we got robbed from it. I think he would have done something historic. He was definitely on pace for, you know, 300 punchies, but I don't think having like a, 
sub one five ERA was was out of the question. How many wins he would have had, I don't know. I think that would have came down to that would have came down to how much we would have would hit. But I think he I think he legitimately had a chance to win his third, which I don't know if he retired after that. I I I, I, I got to think he's got to be in the Hall of Fame if he went three. I mean, I think he's got a case at this point, even though he doesn't have that it's, longevity. But I think yeah. you got two. I think you got two Cy Youngs. I think you know you got a place in 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 the Hall of Fame. I think it's scary to think about how good he is. Can I ask a question now? Yeah. Do you believe? No. Who do you think is more deserving of winning an AL MVP this year? Shohei Otani or Vladimir Guerrero? With the assumption that Vladdy may win the triple crown. And even if he falls short of the triple crown and he ranks first, second, and first, or first, second, and second, or even all seconds, is he who who is more deserving of winning this? It's a great question. Who who is the most valuable player to their team? I don't think there's an, a question that you say Shohei Otani because the Blue Jays' offense is a really good it's offense. Not, it's not even fair though because uh, if if Shohei performs the, to his ability, he's going to win the MVP for the next ten years. If he pitches and plays, no, 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 but, but, but even if he, but even, player, but even if he, even if he performed at league average at both, doesn't that automatically make him more valuable than everyone else? No, it's to me, it's not. It's like You're using one roster spot to get the value of two. He's, he's a cheat code. He's breaking the rules. Yeah, I, I always, I, I don't think pitchers should be able to win the MVP. I just think there's an award for pitchers, and they need to keep their awards. Yeah, and that's then, a pitching MVP and, then, and a hitting MVP. But right, I, I mean, well, what if you do both? Like, well, that's that's why he's a cheat code. So like, like he's doing things that have what? never been done. So if you're the best pitcher in the league, then you win the MVP. And if you're the best position player, you win or the Cy Young in the MVP. It's it, he's I think he's the clear favorite for MVP. Winning a triple crown is not. I mean, uh, you're not, you're going. There's, there's guys that have won triple crowns that have not won the MVP before. So that's not like a thing. It's not guaranteed. Has uh, there been? Somebody's yep. won the triple crown, not won the MVP. Ted Williams did. Okay. Joe DiMaggio won it the year he did. Because when Cabrera won it a couple years ago, I looked it all up. <clears throat> so it's not a it's not a set in stone thing. I I, don't, um, I think it's one. And I would also make the argument that Vladdy's having a great year. There's not a wrong so decision. So is Simeon. So is Teoscar. So is Bo. Like that lineup stack. So I, I mean the Blue Jays. But do you discredit? Do you do you discredit someone's individual success because the team has a lot of success? No. I know he obviously. I know that he obviously has more opportunities to stack numbers in terms of scoring runs, driving in runs. Our offense was because honestly, he's probably, I mean, everything uh, across the board, like he probably their best hitter in their lineup, but you can't just continually put him on base every single time. Cause the guy behind you can hurt him. The guy behind you can hurt him. I mean, it's obviously this trickle down effect, but I, I, I mean, there's a couple factors. I think the writers look for stories and show a story. So that's in his favor. The Blue Jays, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that's the way it is. If you're JD won the MVP, we had a really good offense. And I th- did that contribute to him winning? Like, yeah, of course, being in a great lineup makes good. Well, it, was, it was you guys making the playoffs for the first time. It was There was momentum there. For him. Story. Yeah. Uh, I think if you went just offense alone, Vlad, he's the clear winner. Yeah, but if you're just rating the offensive player, I think it's Vlad. Yeah, but he's had rating, an incredible year, and he's about 20 years But old. the fact that we, we would put Shohei in the conversation as just an offensive player, right? Like, we would, he would be in the conversation, he'd be the top 10 finisher, and then just throw on, like, 17 and 6 with, like, a 2-7 to go with it. He's had a really good amount. Yeah. Who wins that? Who wins the NL? That's a tough one. 
Like, Especially if, if the Phillies make the playoffs, it's definitely Harper. There's Harper, no there's no real like clear cut. Harper guy. is like Brandon Crawford seems like a really good answer to me. Um, he'll get he'll he'll finish top five. I really points, really yeah. like him in general as a player. I just always have Having a great year. That's my boy. Yeah, I know, and your your guys with him too, which makes him kind of my guy de facto. And he's got great hair, great beard. He's a wizard with a glove. Um, there, I really he would be he would be a he would be a conversation you'd like to have just. We'll not, necessarily, the show. not necessarily, not necessarily about, not necessarily about like his entire career, but like his resurgence this year. And it's a conversation I still need to have with him. He's only given me bits and pieces of it when I saw him this year. How about this? But That's I'm going to talk to him this offseason because there was something I played with him in 19. He was struggling a little bit. Seemed like the Brandon Crawford that we once loved is no longer Brandon Crawford. Still a great shortstop, but. You know, he just – he's getting older. He can't do it anymore. He's played a lot of games. He's going to play great shortstop, but uh, he can't hit anymore. Oops. Then 2020 comes around, the short season, same story. Uh, he's, you know, great shortstop, great leader, iconic player of our franchise. Don't know if he's the player we want moving forward. I had these conversations with him, and, you know, he would tell me, God, I hope – I just hope that – San Francisco assigned me for just one more year, like five million bucks, you know, and then I'll kind of figure it out there. He's like, he didn't really want to go out in this free agent market with all these shortstops and kind of be like the one like left behind. Like, yeah. you know, so, you know, fast forward, he turns that hope of one year, five million into two and 32. Decent. And he, like you said, he needs to be in the conversation of maybe not, Maybe he's not the most deserving of winning MVP, but he's got to be in the conversation of, you know, getting MVP votes and, I, you know, finishing top five this year because of, you know, what he's been able to accomplish and being a big part of that resurgence of, you know, what they've If you were given the MVP out 25 years ago, meaning you were giving it to the team that won, made the playoffs, you're giving it to Brandon Crawford this year. Because the Dodgers don't have an obvious candidate. Like, it would be – you could say Muncie, but not really. It would be Muncie there. It would um, be Muncie, numbers-wise. But – But Belt's having a great year, too. Yeah. The, Buster's having a great year, but too. The but the Braves don't have an obvious candidate. Um, Austin Miley. The Central – Milwaukee Milwa- – who's Milwaukee? Who's Milwaukee? Who is Milwaukee's MVP right now? Their pitching staff? Like, you'd have to say their pitching wow, staff. Wow, we go there in a couple of days? Ugh. Ugh. When Votto said that that's the best pitching staff he's ever faced, that's how I know he's real. Hey, you know what else, too? I don't know if I should say this openly. I told you we this earlier. Cut it out. Or like, I still, I still, I still love, you know me, I still love playing every single day. I wish I could play every single day. I hate the idea that we platoon in this world now, but then there's certain times, and I told him the other day, Zach Wheeler was pitching, and I said, fuck, I'm so happy I'm not left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sit. I'll sit this one out right now, and then I'm thinking the same thing. We're gonna go to Milwaukee after this series, and I'm like, if we happen to run into like a Woodruff Burns, Peralta situation, <laughs> like that's an e. That's it. I mean, luckily I've hit lower in the lineup, but I'm like, that's an easy over nine. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking which one of those guys am I gonna Just get? Jump a heater, bro. Yeah, Just I mean, go I, jump you know, heater. you know, I, chances, gonna, chances I might go knowing, one for three on those guys. Each of them. Knowing you, you play that series out, and you're four for nine with. With yeah, you know, there's a chance. There's definitely a chance, but I'm thinking there's also a chance I can very easily go over nine with nine punches. Because <laughs> those guys are legit. Like, if, let, let me, me tell you something. something. We want strength on strength. 
Burns throwing that 99 mile an hour cutter is not strength. Let, strength. Me, tell, let me tell you something. The I, Woodruff 98 mile an hour sinker, like I'm gonna, yeah, I like my chances, but the cutter down and away. I know you. I know you. Oh, There's I'll, no I'll, shot you're punching out nine times. There's no shot. Oh no, I would, I'll bet my life savings no, on it. Because I would, I would, I would, I would take a D swing on OO just to put one in play. <laughs> Just so I can get a That's courtesy, first team just, just so I can get a courtesy jog oh, on the line, God. maybe snip a knock. This was or awesome. I'm trying to bunt. We gotta end the show. It's too much content. Is there such a thing as too much content? No. no. All right. Oh, I'm gonna tell you two things. I need to go to the bathroom and then yeah. I need to eat. So we gotta end the show. This was unbelievable. I gotta talk to my kids. Awesome. Yeah, you got, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. Okay. You talk to your kids. Bob, hey, good to see you. I'm gonna do a wave. Why? Too. Likewise, that was great. Uh, thank, thank you so much. Because awesome. I gave you all this time. That's two hours of content. That's two. Hours. That's two full hours. It's unbelievable. I have so much more. Patrick, maybe I should do my own podcast. There's pictures from uh... once a month. You want to, You can be a co-host. I'll just step away. Get all right. Do this. You get Brandon Crawford on the show. You be the co-host. I'll step up. Joe, yeah. I can you do get a day off for. Why can't you be on it too? Record once a week. You don't need a day off. I'll be on the show. Can we? We need to start Play golf and you're asking for a day off. Stuff we yeah. wanted to do forever and ever. Roundtable. Yeah, roundtable discussions with good baseball people. Yeah, like the version of the shop. Like let's just sit around. Yeah, Will Smith's red table. We'll get a table. We'll put a paint a baseball on it. Talk about real real stuff. It's is like it, a Facebook it, show. Yeah, but I thought that was his wife. Isn't it? Yeah, Jada. Jada does it right. No. So the yeah, round table, the red chair, or something. She had her own. It only, it only pops up on my feed when it's Will. Oh. All right. Thank you. See ya. Good to hey, see you, Bobby. This is how we end the show. Yeah. Hang on. Like this. Oh. <laughs> hey, go out. <laughs>